podcast starts. Hello everyone. If this is your first time listening to the show, then welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back and thanks for sticking with us. This show talks about horror. Horror in film, TV, other media, other items which we think of as adjacent to horror, and sometimes other things from our lives which we'd like to talk about just because that's who we are. Our discussions aim to be fun, intelligent, and hopefully useful if your interest in horror texts comes from a creative or academic perspective. But be warned, we do tend to swear occasionally. And if it's anything less offensive than the C word, it won't get bleeped. So... We are probably not safe for your work. In this episode, we're talking about another missed classic. The 1973 British ghost horror film written by Richard Matheson, The Legend of Hell House. We have a number of hosts who alter week to week, but I am T.D. Velasquez. As always, you can call me Dan, and I'm in Greater Manchester. This week, I have the great pleasure of being joined by... Ian Winterton in Cheshire. Hello, Ian. And we are honoured to have a returning very special guest, the musical podcaster and writer and general fine chap, Tim Shaw. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Hello. It's so good to have you back on the show. It's a pleasure to meet you, Ian, and it's a pleasure to be back on this podcast. Yeah. Well, last time Tim was on the podcast, Ian, we talked talked with Howard about the film Horror Express, about which Tim knows more than any human and we got a really interesting detailed rundown of that 1972 horror movie um and tim always said to me after that that if you ever want to talk about the legend of hell house that's another one about which i'm particularly enthusiastic so that that came came up quite naturally in our discussion of ghosts the other week didn't it Mm -hmm. and and it was you, Ian, who decided it's time I watch this. So if you if you hang around geeks enough, I'm sure you're very annoyed by Doctor Who. Uh, <laughs> use of the monster, Tim Shaw. Um, oh yes, yeah. Sorry, Tim's had to put up with that for years now. Yeah. Well, actually, there's something else which has cropped up since Doctor Who. Yeah, I've, I've had to put with, with the whole Doctor Who references, and I'm flattered that my name was used for that Tim for those Shaw. particular episodes. Yeah, I get that it's all the such time. Such a classic monster that everyone loves. <laughs> well, all I can say is that my teeth are in better, better shape than his, and they're on the right so, parts of your body as well. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, they're actually where they're meant to be. Yeah. But but something else, but something else has cropped up recently. A friend of mine in America has pointed out there was a Tim Shaw character in the original series of Dark Shadows. All right. Okay. Yes, and there's, a, there's even a whole episode titled. Um, around him, I think it's the tragedy of Tim Shaw. It's called. It sounds rather appropriate. Right. Oh, that's I wonder wonderful. if he appears so, in the Big Finish versions. Well, yeah, I, I wonder. Those are the only Dark Shadows I know. I've never seen the original series yeah. or the films, but I've heard some of the audio dramas. Well, I've got good yeah, reason to watch them now. So. <laughs> yes, and uh, well, here's an impromptu recommendation. Last time I looked might not be true anymore but a while ago they were all on amazon prime or quite a lot of them were so people can check out dark shadows there i do know some big dark shadows fan and i kind of love the idea of a daily vampire soap opera but i've I've never actually watched it another avian that's that's what i found out about it when when i read up about the show i was like this sounds really crazy but i really want to watch it and not just because my namesake is in it um but it's just nice to know that my that my namesake has been used uh, you know, numerous times across various fandoms. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, know, what it, I don't, I don't know what it is about the name. 
I think hopefully it's a trend which will go on. And it will you sound um... like a real person. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> it has the, the ring of authenticity. The last yes. one I checked, I definitely was. No one's ever going to use my stupid <laughs> multi-syllable piece of nonsense like my parents gave me. That's a character name. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I can't stand my name. Ian went to town! <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great, Ian. We wouldn't have no. it any differently. No. Um, I'd like a nice one-syllable surname. <laughs> nice. Powerful. Anyway. Not like Belasco. Um, it, it's interesting that um, we talk about Dark Shadows as well, because of course that TV show, which ran in America in the late 60s, was produced by Dan Curtis, who later developed a, a professional relationship with Richard Matheson, who wrote Legend of Hell House. So, um, But I suppose it's a small world in, in the area of that's, vampire television. That's a seamless segue. That, that, is our first, that is our first connection. That is our first connection, but we've not even talked about news yet, so I did a segue at the wrong time. Oh, well. Um, is there any news anybody wants to talk about? I, I feel I just want to mention that um, it, this week was the big Disney, uh, I think they, they called it an investor summit or something like that, where they announced their new and upcoming pro projects to reassure their investors. And did one of the projects... Did price go up just from announcing on... the rest of drama? I wouldn't be surprised. It was. I think I heard it did. It was very heavily focused yeah. on streaming content, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, the worst thing about streaming stuff is when people go, oh, do I really want to yet another streamer? Am I going to watch it? And with Disney, I kind of thought, oh, I'm not going to watch this. Just get it for The Mandalorian. But I have got three children, and they literally never watch it. it it's... For, for the fact that they're the YouTube generation, the YouTube they watch a lot, but they the second most watched thing is Disney. Yeah, I and, think Disney Plus is a great channel, actually. I mean, I don't like superheroes, so there's a whole raft that I'm not bothered about, and mm. I don't like half the Star Wars films. So now this news was good for me, because I was like, more like The Mandalorian, I yeah. never like. Even, even Dad's going to get to keep watching Disney. Um, so that... Um, that Rogue Squadron um, trailer, the teaser that they put out was. Uh, I didn't see person. it, but. Oh, okay. it's, um, it's kind of weird because she talks about she 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 cashes in on a dead fighter pilot dad. Um, oh, the director Patty Jenkins. Yeah, yeah. yeah she says yeah, she yeah. always wanted so, so, to make a movie about um, the the about fighter pilot pilot's experience, and then she goes, but I couldn't come up the story, so I thought I'd do one set in a space with some muppets. Because that's what he would have wanted. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, essentially, yeah. that is a bit odd. The reason I bring it up, though, is because one of their announcements was that they'll be making a TV series based on Alien, um, written by Noah Hawley. Mm. And I have... A few weeks ago, didn't you, as a possible... Yeah, I'm less enthusiastic about the idea now that it's actually happening, and I know some details about it. Is, is, it, it... is it Disney that's announced that? Oh, well, it was announced as part because it's it's by Fox, isn't it? Which is owned by Disney. <gasps> so the announcement came from in that direction. Oh, I see. Um, and yeah, I heard that it's not set in the far future. It's set in the yeah. near future on yeah. Earth. That made me want to cry a bit. Yeah. <laughs> because, um, near future. There's there's a, a long and and sad history of people trying to set things with the aliens on Earth 
in the well, in, near to the present day. Alien Predator was set present day, so we've got a really good, we've got yeah. a really strong entry in the uh, in the exactly. franchise to uh, exactly. build on. So, um, <laughs> I think I think you and I Ian, need to vent about this um, at length at some other point. But, Probably um, away from away from the general public. <laughs> <laughs> yes, perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> Uh, Tim, there was something in production at the moment that I think caught your attention. Uh, yeah, in fact, very recently I found out um, that Series 6 of Inside Number 9 is in the works. I think it's being filmed um, as we speak. Uh, I can only assume that means it should be out next year sometime. But that's all I know about it at the moment. Uh, I, mean, I, knew, I knew that um, they commissioned two more, ser- uh, two more series, but I didn't know what stage they're at. But I've heard very recently that, that uh, Series 6 is currently being filmed. That's fantastic news. Um, we're yeah, all big great. fans of Inside Number Nine on this show, so. Oh, absolutely, and, and um, as I say, I, it, despite everything that's been happening in the last year, I, I, it's great to hear that that um, they're still carrying on with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I I feel slightly odd in that I I'm a person whose excitement about Inside Number Nine centres on the scary stuff in it rather than the fact that it's funny. But it seems to be to me mostly menacing, um, and um, and I even like the episodes like the trial of Elizabeth Gadge, which is about the the um, the witch finder situation, um, which kind of are incredibly grotesque and nasty, but also hilarious. Um, well, it's the thing, isn't it? I, I've I love the series because it's um, yeah, it is funny. It's also incredibly clever. And then, yeah, in some episodes, it is absolutely downright harrowing. In fact, one episode was named after that. Oh, right. I haven't seen that one. The harrowing is, is, is what it says on the tin. Right. Okay. I shall check that one out because I haven't seen every episode. I've just seen the ones oh, okay. that people have directed me towards. And that's the other thing because it's an anthological show. You know, you don't have to watch it in order. You can watch it out of sequence. Um, yeah. Which is you know, such a great thing about it. No, sad confession, when it first started in, I think, 2012, I didn't think much of it because I watched the first episode not realising it was an anthology series. And I got to the end of the first episode and thought, I don't know what this has set up. Why am I supposed to watch next week? (laughs) None of these characters seem sufficient to carry a series, so I didn't watch it again until about a year later when somebody explained to me, no, it's an anthology series. You just... (laughs) The episodes stand alone, and so and, 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 and they're all set inside number nine somewhere. In fact, a friend of mine who's a really big fan of uh, inside, inside number nine, um, I met with him a couple of years ago, and he was staying in this uh, in this guest house. And I said, "You know what room number you're in?" He said, "Yeah, nine. I said, "Oh my god, right. <laughs> this weekend is going to be interesting." <laughs> wow, yeah, fantastic! No. And then he was like, "Oh yeah, I never even noticed that." That show is beautifully written and, and really nicely done. And uh, I, I've never watched it and, and not felt rewarded for doing so. So that's great. Yeah, some of the episodes are superb. Their take on Ghostwatch was, uh, was amazing. Yeah, of course, Tim is a huge Ghostwatch fan, has podcasted about it, knows yeah. some of the people behind Ghostwatch behind the curtains. Uh, introduced mm-hmm. me to Stephen Volk. Um, and um, uh, yeah, I think I, I I think we were in good company here, loving that episode of Inside Number Nine and and loving Ghost Watch, yeah. Generally, 
Uh, we, uh, we, yeah, I did a podcast um, about Ghost Watch, and it was part of a podcast that was starting with a friend of mine called uh, Ghosts in the Machine. Um, and then we did a second episode based on the um, Deadline episode of mm. Inside Number Nine. Um, uh, but oh. that is still an, that is still an unreleased episode. That, but that, but when we go back to doing that podcast, because that podcast is currently um, sort of you know um, sitting on the shelf, as it were. Um, yeah, the, the unreleased episode will be finished and released along with um, a re-edit of the Ghost Watch podcast. So that'll be coming at some point in the future. But I probably should have mentioned that later. <laughs> no, no, that podcast has stalled, but you mainly do music podcasts at the moment, don't you? And um, yes, feel, so, feel yes. free to give yourself a plug. Um, we'll put links or mentions in the show notes. Yeah, so at the moment I do um, music podcasts that are pretty much uh, radio shows, but they're just, you know, some are pre-recorded and some are done live, but then, you know, released for people to listen to later on. Um, and they're all hosted on mixcloud.com. So you can go to mixcloud.com slash podradiomusic. And if you fancy listening to 70s, 80s, 90s, and even noughties, because that's retro now, then that's the place to go uh, to hear my series of music shows on those decades. And they're a lot of fun and they're great listens. And I highly recommend them. But of course I would. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. And something else I need to ask you, Tim, because the listeners who've heard our Horror Express episode will be wondering, you were talking about writing a novel um, sequelizing Horror Express. Um, how's that going? Okay, so originally I wanted to um, write it for NaNoWriMo uh, last year. Uh, missed the boat on that, um, and then I had other things going on. So I started to um, outline it uh, last summer. Uh, and then the um, radio project kicked off, and I spent more time on that. So um, it fell by the, by the wayside, but I had something you know outlined ready to go. And so I started uh, writing it in NaNoWriMo this year. Unfortunately, I started it a bit late. Um, and I knew that I wasn't quite going to, you know, um, make the deadline. So I also wasn't very happy with um, what I'd outlined and where it was going because I was trying to condense um, three different story ideas into one big story. And um, the way I was going about it, I wasn't very happy about. So I've basically scrapped what I've got so far and I'm going to be starting again in the new year. So it is coming. It's just a little bit slower than I originally anticipated, but it, it, but, um, it is in the works um, and there will be something to read at some point in the future. It is still happening. Okay, great. So listeners, watch this space. Tim Shaw expanding the Horror Express franchise into the future. It needs to be done. So we're going to keep an eye on that. Okay, so um, having done our news, I think we can segue into talking about The Legend of Hell House. So that segue that I did before that was really neat imagine i've done that again or in fact i could sort of do another one in that we did talk about disney plus and one of the things i've recently been watching on disney plus was uh, escape to witch mountain which i watched because it's done by the same director as the legend of hell house a couple of years later um so so hell house is a movie that leads directly to disney at this point, I usually play the soundtrack of the trailer to the film we're about to discuss, but I'm not going to do on this occasion because the trailer of Legend of Hell House is, in a very 70s way, kind of just lots of scenes from the film randomly cut together and it doesn't really give a very good idea of what the film's like. So I'll, I'm going to just describe it. Um, so, 
1970, the great writer Richard Matheson, author of The Incredible Shrinking Man and screenwriter of Duel and, and many, many other, thing, other things, wrote a novel called Hell House, which is essentially a, a story that's the same pitch as The Haunting, a bunch of um, psychic investigator type people go into a, a reputedly haunted house and intend to get to the bottom of it. Um, Matheson did this deliberately. He loved The Haunting by Shirley Jackson, The Haunting of Hill House, the novel, and the film The Haunting, and he wanted to write something similar, but he wanted to write something that had more of an unambiguous supernatural edge to it, something that you couldn't explain by saying, oh, maybe some of the characters are, are a bit mad. Um, that was his aim. He wrote Hell House. He tried to get it made into a movie under his own steam. He couldn't, so he ended up selling it to um, the Academy Corporation, who produced it in England, although it's an American set novel, um, in 1973. Um, the four people who go into this house are Roddy McDowell, Gail Honeycutt, Clive Reveal, and um, Pamela Franklin, who's top build. Um, Pamela Franklin, who was the little, little girl from The Innocents, a bit more grown up. And the plot nugget of the movie is that a rich, um, dying man pays these four people to go to a haunted house to prove whether or not there is life after death because he doesn't have very long to live. And he gives them a week to do this. And actually, it's the week leading up to Christmas. We know because the dates of the action are given on screen throughout the movie. So that is... Um, the Nugget of the Legend of Hell House. So we've got two, my two companions here, both have very different experiences of seeing the film. Ian, you've only just seen it for the first time, having not known anything about it. Tim, you've got a long-time relationship with it, so let's start with you. How did you discover Hell House and what does it mean to you? My relationship with um, Hell House goes back to pretty much the same time that I first saw Horror Express. I think it was probably about the same year that I also saw The Legend of Hell House for the, for the first time. I was very young. I mean, I probably shouldn't have been watching it. <laughs> I was about five years old at the time, I think, if I remember right. Um, and it was, the same, it was the same way I got to see Horror Express. My mother was watching it one afternoon, and I just happened to be in the room. I only remember seeing certain scenes because I obviously did, I didn't see all of it at the time, but I remember those scenes well because they were quite powerful scenes, even though I didn't particularly um, understand what was going on, you know, within the context of the film um i just i found it intriguing because i hadn't obviously hadn't seen anything like it and it didn't scare me because i didn't understand what i was seeing um and then uh one morning i decided to find the video and watch it myself um on my own uh, but from the beginning so i could actually see you know how it started and you know actually watch the whole film because it interested me that much um, and my mother caught me and said, you're not watching this, turned it off. And I didn't get to see it again until around about 10 years ago when I find, when I rediscovered it, when I knew about it for years and I always wanted to watch it again, but I rediscovered it. Um, and I watched it, you know, from start to finish, absolutely loved it, was actually scared by it this time. Right. Um, but also all the scenes I remember from when I was a kid that have still stuck in my mind all these years. Um, it was just nice to see those scenes again in context with the film and with the story. Um, and now it's become, like Horror Express, one of my all-time favourites. And it is usually a go-to film for me 
most Halloweens. Um, it's definitely one to watch, um, you know, with the lights off, a glass of your favourite favorite tipple and your feet up, and don't try and get too scared. Oh, that's wonderful. You've got a real history there. And um, I think that sounds like a, a wonderful recommendation for anyone who's listening to this who, who's not seen the film. We will go into spoilers later, but, but we always just give our spoiler-free impressions first thing and before we go to you ian there's a guest appearance on the podcast that i just need to make room for our old friend howard whittock was very keen to to share his thoughts about this movie spoiler free so um that was recorded in a phone call with myself and we'll just have a listen to that howard whittock welcome back to the podcast hello and it's very nice to be back yes after all this time i do I must explain why uh, I've not been around. It's simply because, because of coronavirus restrictions, everything has to be done remotely on computers, and I'm really not terribly good at that sort of thing. Um, so I've just been sitting here uh, all through this pandemic, sitting, watching Holmes Under the Hammer, and <laughs> uh, uh, eating Jaffa cakes and drinking tea and just sort of uh, waiting for this bizarre, extraordinary year to end. And, uh, and it has been. It just... It has been extraordinary. This is an historical event that we're living through, and it's just been weird. Yeah. But I, I've been I've been living down in Shropshire. Things haven't been too bad down here. Um, this uh, little market town here. So I've been okay. Uh, but yes, I'm fine. I'm fine. Glad to hear that, sir. I've been keeping the listeners informed of your status, um, but it's good to have you firsthand give an affirmation of. Uh, your your wellness and uh, and that of your family and everyone. Um, yes, that... they're fine. Yes, we're just all you know, just trying to get through it and uh, just drinking lots of tea. Uh, and I'm eating quite a lot of Pringles. That seems <laughs> to be. That's you a... know, and just just watching. I've been watching all my favourite films. I spent this whole time was watching all my favourite films again, which I love from Double Indemnity and Twelve Angry Men to um, Dracula AD nineteen seventy two. Superb. Always cheers me up. <laughs> the Pringles plus the the favourite films adds up to a great coping strategy. So, yes, I develop. Yes, you have to develop a coping strategy, and that's mine. Yeah, well, for this particular episode, I I was conscious that you know because of uh, the aforementioned technical difficulties, we couldn't get you on for very long. But I knew you'd have something to say about this film, so I thought let's have a quick phone call so you can chip in some thoughts. Um, I'd be really interested to hear as I'm sure the uh, listeners will as well, what you have to say, Howard, about The Legend of Hell House. The Legend of Hell House. What a great title. Well, of course, when, whenever we talk about these films on this podcast, I always try to try and remember when I first saw it and what I thought about when I first saw it. Uh, and so I must have seen it back in the 1980s when I was just a mere child, uh, a teenager. And the first time I watched it, I, I, I was struck. This seemed a very different film to most of the horror films I've been watching up until that time, which mainly been Hammer films or the Amicus films. And this, this had a very different atmosphere and a very different mood. This was not set in Transylvania. This was not about vampires or werewolves or Dracula. Uh, this seemed very much set in the real world. Uh, and because of that, I thought it was very scary. I probably didn't enjoy it that much the first time I saw it because I got so used to the Hammer tradition and so used to those sort of films. And this just seemed so odd and so... Um, unlike those, but as I've watched it again over the years, I realise it's um, it's a really terrific film. I mean, I, it is really scary because it's done in this kind of understated, almost kind of documentary way. 
um, the scary stuff seems much more real. It's not mm. because it's interesting, I think, to compare it to the haunting, which is more or less the same story uh, done what, about ten years earlier. Yeah, the one with Bloom and Julie Harris, uh, and that's like a big Hollywood film, and it's all done in black and white, and it's all quite stylized and quite expressionistic and everything. And this is like the same story, but done in a very kind of authentic documentary way. It's even got the time at the bottom, isn't it? Like Tuesday the fifth or whatever. Yeah, and it, it feels real. The way it's done, it feels very real, and because of that, it is scary. When you get the the paranormal phenomenon, where you get the the shape under the bedclothes, and she tears them off, and there's nothing there, or when plates start flying around the room, or the the table starts, it's kind of like wow, that 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 is really unnerving and really unsettling because it all seems so real. It doesn't feel, and I was thinking when I was thinking about this film, it's almost like the end of the Hammer tradition, that all those Dracula films and Frankenstein films, which we all loved, I certainly did, uh, they're out of date now. They're old-fashioned. In the wake of The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby, that stuff doesn't really go anymore. This this is what horror is now. Mm. It's much more kind of, in a way, much more subtle, more sophisticated, more creepy, more eerie kind of film. And I think it works. I, I do. I, when I watched it, I watched it earlier this year, I think it was, and I was struck. I thought, wow, this is terrific, because this is really scary. A horror film is supposed to be scary, and this film is really scary, and it's really kind of disquieting. And the atmosphere and the music... It's yeah. like Delia Derbyshire, isn't it? It is Delia Derbyshire and Brian Hodgson, yeah. And it is, that's completely unlike the horror film music that you're used to, the James Bernard, which is brilliant, but the very melodramatic. Dun, 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 dun. This is far more kind of weird and abstract, and, and it just contributes to this strange, this this weird atmosphere. But it is it is a very kind of authentic film. It does feel very real. Um, uh, and all the, it's got a great cast. And again, if Peter Cushing or Christopher Lee or Vincent Price were in this film, it wouldn't work as well. It would have those kind of uh, resonances. But this is um, Pamela Franklin, who'd been in The Innocents. So it was a bit of a kind of horror film cast, because you've got Pamela Franklin, who'd been in The Innocents and, and Soon the Darkness, which is a favourite of mine. Roddy McDowell had been in a few horror films. Clive Revilla done all sorts of stuff. Uh, but it's again, they're, they're, they're not that much associated with horror films, so it does feel much more... It just, I just keep saying it feels real. It just feels kind of authentic. It's got that sort of semi-documentary feel about it, which, which um, makes it work really well. And it is it is a very unnerving film. The first time I watched it, uh, or perhaps the second time I watched it, when I was perhaps a bit more into it, I thought, wow, this, this is really scary. This really is scary. Uh, it's not just vampires jumping out and stuff, which kind of like is, is more... Those films are fun, but perhaps they're not that frightening. But this, wow, this, this really gets you. Uh, and the only thing, the only slightly disappointing thing, well, perhaps there's two things. The, the, the one disappointing thing is the ending, which I won't give away. You have to find out for yourself. But <laughs> the reason why this house is haunting and who's doing it and why they're doing it is a bit, doesn't quite work for me. It's all a bit strange. Sure. And the other thing which I was thinking about last night when I was thinking about this film is how the scientist, played by Clive Ravel, brilliantly, mm-hmm. Colombo murderer, Clive Reville, very good. Um, Is he a Colombo murderer? I thought he probably should be, but I haven't seen that episode. He's the IRA man, the poet who's working for the IRA, or for an Irish terrorist organisation, let's say. Uh, And uh, he's really great in that, and he's really great in this. Mm. But in these sort of films, I know why they do it, but the scientist always has to be portrayed as being slightly pompous, slightly arrogant, and slightly narrow-minded. And they always turn out to be wrong. 
because mm. they're saying oh, we've got to be rational and there's a rational explanation for everything and so uh, and then it turns out there isn't there really are ghosts and there really is psychic phenomena and stuff and i kind of like well as somebody who does believe in science and the application of science and i was just thinking about all the anti-vaxxers now who, who kind of don't believe in science whatever yeah. and you know s- kind of thinking well the scientist is always sort of i understand why because that's the nature of these kind of films but it did slightly bother me that the scientist is always being portrayed as slightly sort of narrow-minded or a bit obstinate or whatever um yeah. but i did like i did like pamela franklin's character because she actually she's quite feisty and she's quite sort of um sarky and she's quite a bit petulant when she's talking about the psychic stuff that's going on and um, she's not just some ethereal frail little person she's actually quite gives as good as she gets kind of thing and i thought she's it's, it's a bit they're all great gail honeycutt as well they're all really good and uh roland culver turns up yeah, well, Peter Bowles for a minute as well. It's a very small cast, but very high quality. It is very good. They're all really good actors, yes. And again, that gives it that authenticity. It's it just, I don't know, I keep saying it, just most of the horror films I like, the ones I watch, the ones I've been watching all the way through this pandemic to cheer me up, you know, Island of Terror and these sort of things and Dracula, Prince of Darkness, they're all... They're all wonderfully lurid and colourful and exciting and melodramatic, but they're not really scary. Yeah, it's not. It was never the scariness that was that appealed to me about them. It, it was just the, the excitement of it. The more, but this, this, it kind of reminds me a bit of things like the Stone Tape that was on telly and the yeah. Nigel Neal stuff, and it's much more that kind of creepy, spooky, uh, kind of insinuating sort of stuff. It, it just, it's much more, perhaps much more sophisticated, and it's sort of perhaps mark the end of that hammer you couldn't really do vampires and frankenstein anymore after films like this have come out because they just look a bit sort of old-fashioned yeah i mean i think it's interesting this came out in the same year as the exorcist um and and we've discussed on the podcast how 1973 is a really important year for horror films certainly that have influenced this podcast so the wicker man my favorite film came out then um, the Exorcist, which is Ian's favourite film. Theatre of Blood, which is your favourite film. Um, and then, you know, you've also got Don't Look Now and you've got um, Hammer films as well, but kind of strange latter period Hammer films like The Satanic Rites of Dracula and Frankenstein, The Monster from Hell. Yes, I still think some of the later Hammer films are really good. I still like Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde and, and stuff like that, and Captain Kronos. But it does, it does films like Hell House seemed to kind of mark a bit of a sea change, that things are changing, that horror's changing, that you can't... They've been Hammer's been doing vampires and Dracula and things for 15 years or so, maybe more. Amicus has been doing what it's been doing and stuff like that. And they're all great, but we've kind of... We've grown past that now. We're moving sort of towards... You know, there's things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and then Halloween, and that's... Um, Horror films that are very much set in the real world in the modern day. We're not going to Transylvania. We're not going to Karlstadt. We're not going to Victorian London. There's no castles or cloaks or carriages or things like that. There's or sinister manservants. It's all very much set in the real world now. Um, and this film in particular, although it's set in a big house, it does. It feels um, a bit like where Roddy McDowell first time seen Roddy McDowell's at a railway station. The train's yeah. coming in. But that feels like the real world. He's coming on a train. Yeah. You know, sort of like. Um, and that gives it right away a kind of feeling of um, everyday kind of again. Is that just that kind of like it feels like a semi-documentary stuff kind of? So um, I think that's all. Well, I just think it's a really great film. When I watched it, um, 
earlier this year, I think it was, I thought, wow, this works really well. And it is frightening. It is spooky. It is eerie. It gets you. It has an, it, it has an impact on you. The sort of the scary stuff still works because it's just done in such a kind of understated way. And yeah. when lights start flying around and stuff, it's like, wow, it's, uh, it's really effective. Well, I think what you've said would be music to director John Hoff's ears. You've managed to talk for 10 minutes or so, pretty much uninterrupted about The Legend of Hell House, which is a great sign yeah, well, of your enthusiasm. Yeah. So I think I don't really need to ask if you would recommend it to people who've not seen it. I, think... I would definitely recommend it to people who haven't seen it, yes. So you... It's definitely not talking pictures. It just crops up every so often, so just look out for it. And the music's really good, and... Uh... Yeah, it's slightly ahead of its time, perhaps, in a way. But, uh, yeah, it's really great. It's a great film. So that's Howard's thoughts. Good to have him back on the show. Um, and that... Most, uh, ten, that was a very, very amazing ten minutes from Howard. Um, he, uh, he's like, oh, yes, well, that'll do for the podcast. He touches on everything. Yeah, and... Um, <laughs> without succinct, ten, brilliant ten minutes. Without really being prompted by me, he just flowed for ten yeah, minutes. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. No, that was great. So, Ian, having yeah. um, heard Tim's and uh, Howard's thoughts, you mm-hmm. you wanted to watch this film because you heard it was scary. Um, you'd never seen it before. So my first question to you is, did it frighten you? It did, not as much as other things. Um, mm-hmm. But um, but I, I liked it, and I would recommend it. Um, obviously, we won't go into spoilers and things. At this stage, not for a few minutes. Not for a few minutes. Um, but yeah, just in in general, I did like it, and I would recommend it. And it's it's one of those films that I have probably just gone, yeah, I've seen that because I've been in certain company, and right. thinking about it. Do you know what? I haven't seen that one. There's, there are a lot of films, and uh, Legend of Hell House is one of those ones that I vaguely knew about but hadn't seen. It was a bit like The Changeling. I hadn't seen that. Um, All right, and I I love that now. But I'd always heard that was one I should watch, and I got into that. And I've I've been I've been rewatching or watching stuff a lot in um, in lockdown, like a lot of people have. Um, so that's been uh, that's been one of the upsides to this awful slow apocalypse. Um, slow apocalypse. But yeah, yeah, but Legend of Hell House, I I did watch it in a, on the afternoon, so it wasn't probably optimum horror time sure. um, as i've said before i sometimes think horror is like comedy and that the atmosphere of the watching can sometimes be quite important yeah. um but i'd love to rewatch it with my wife who just makes everything scarier because she i mean i watched the exorcist with her a few days a few weeks ago and because she's always been told by her by her parents never watch the exorcist and i eventually went look it, it's oscar it's Oscar-worthy movie-making. It's my favourite film. Please watch it. And she watched it all the way through. And to start with, she was like, this isn't that scary. I don't know what all the fuss is about. And then by the end of it, she said, can you just pause it? And I went, why? I'm, I'm having a panic attack. <laughs> wow. And she kept watching it. And, she, and I said, and I said, so, so you got through that then? I've seen you scream at other movies. And she went, well, I had three actual panic attacks during that film. Oh, so, uh, gee. so that's Gosh. really fun. Um, <laughs> to watch scary movies with someone like that, if you can persuade them to put the damn things on. <laughs> Legend of Hell House is, is, you know, it's not very scary compared to 
of the yeah. scary movies. So I think it'd just be quite enjoyable. Yeah. I, I, I would recommend watching it at night, definitely. You, yeah, you, yeah. you definitely get more of a sense of the film um, from watching it at that time rather than the afternoon. Yeah. It still, it still made me. Um, it still, it still made me go Ooh, creepy. I still got the hairs on the back of my neck. I, I will say for my part on the film that I, I do think it's. Um, I, I like it a lot. I think it's slightly flawed. Um, Howard pointed out that the ending's a bit disappointed, and I think it's good to just kind of pre-warn people about that. It, it is a bit of a damp squib, but I think for the most part, the movie is sufficiently. Um, stylish in its use of sound and its use of vision that I think it would be quite involving even if you do watch it in a really um, atmospheric uh, setting it's just quite persuasive maybe mm. in a way it's slightly too persuasive because what I like is the kind of ghost stories that are very very subtle, almost so subtle that you know, if somebody walks in the room while you're watching it, it ruins the whole thing. It's like a house of cards. And mm. I, I think this movie is more robust than that. It's got a kind of almost action movie sensibility to it, mm. I think. You know, some yeah. of the, the haunting visitations are spectacular um, poltergeist affairs. It'd be interesting to compare it to poltergeist, actually, although I can't because I haven't seen that film for a long time. But, Ian, you mentioned The Exorcist, and, and also I'd like you to compare it to another film I know you like, which is The Haunting, because mm -hmm. it's an obvious point of comparison. Um, in fact, uh, my Halliwell's film guide, um, I, I always remember its review of Hell House. I remember a lot of Halliwell's reviews because they tend to be one sentence and quite pithy, and it calls Hell House a harrowing thriller, a less sombre but more frightening version of The Haunting. And it, and it gives it one star, which, in terms of Halliwell, that's a lot. Alien got one star. Is it like one out? Is it three, the possible three? The highest is four, but you can also get no stars and still be quite good. Right. You know... Um, ridiculous, sir. It's kind of not very helpful. But what it, what it does is it means that it just... <laughs> you know if the film is anything above average, your your attention is directed to it. Uh, but anything that's kind of, you know, less than that, yeah, you're left in the dark as to whether or not it's good or not. Although, to be fair, his actual reviews usually tell you pretty straight if it's bad. Basically, that's yeah. everything. He didn't mince <laughs> his words, how he will. Yeah. So, but yeah, how would you compare it to The Haunting or The Exorcist? I, well... Because, I mean, it came out in the same year as The Exorcist, and having yeah. just read the book... Um, it's interesting to compare it to The Exorcist, as they bo both books were written at the same time and both adapted into movies at the yeah, same time. Like, I think, um, I think, as Howard said in his in his amazingly <laughs> his amazing ten minutes, is I think he really hit on the fact that probably probably consciously, um, Matheson sort of went right the haunting, and he probably had, and he probably also had the innocence in head. He it's did no definitely, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's it's on no coincidence. Yeah, yeah. And I think consciously he moved into the world. What makes it different from just being a supernatural uh, entity? Let's bring in the science. And it's interesting, as as, um, as uh, Howard sort of mentioned, he mentioned Nigel Neal. And, you know, 
Nigel Neal's been doing that since the 50s with Quatermass and his other things. And Stone Tate um, came out in 72 before this. Yeah. Um, so that sort of mixture is what sets this apart as well. And also, it's, it's a canny thing to do because if it was just a supernatural entity, it wouldn't. It would be just a reworking of a haunted house. Whereas they do have the sci-fi, for want of a better word, it's sci-fi basically, isn't it? Because yes, yeah, yeah, it's going. There's a weird energy, and we're going to use a strange machine that we're not. We're going to be very specific about <laughs> uh, to vibrate as sort of like a dehumidifier, but for spookiness. <laughs> yes, um, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> are, we, are, we, are we kind of into? Are we into sort of st uh, spoiler territory yet? I think. Um, let, let's go into spoilers. Um, Yes. Everybody, I, I if you I have, think... sorry, Tim, is I there think... anything you'd like I... to say before we go into spoilers? No, to the lead lined I... room now, so you're not allowed. I, yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's impossible to discuss it any further without going into spoilers now. Yeah, well, let's do that then. Yeah. Listeners, if you haven't seen it, go get the DVD. It's it's yeah. worth it. I got it for £3 from Sainsbury's last year, so you might be able to get it quite easily. I got um, it £2.99 off, off the evil Amazon. Fantastic. So Within, within five hours of ordering it. Um, well, what you mean? That's how quickly no, it's no, arrived. Not, not, no, not five hours actually. But it literally, I ordered it quite late at night, and it turned up the next day. Right. So, wow. I bet that delivery yeah. driver was paid top dollar. Um, he's probably got almost <laughs> as good a deal as the people in the film have from Mister Deutsch, who's paying them to stay for <laughs> yeah, a week yeah. in this house. Um, yes. So. Well, some thunders. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, I'm just going to, before we, we continue the discussion into spoilers, mm. I'm going to ask either of you, are you going to discuss the ending now, or, or have you got other things that you want to say first? We'll get to the ending at the ending then. Okay. Um, like I was saying when we were talking about Dracula, I think we were talking about the, the destination of movies. I know we were talking about Hill House, weren't we? And uh, Yeah. The, the Haunting of Hill House, not Hell House. Just... The Haunting of Hill House, not yes. Hell House. Yeah, the Haunting of Hill House TV series. Um, and it's, it's often something I use, especially with stuff that's about the concept. It's the journey can be very enjoyable, and the destination for me is whether I want to then go back. Whereas, yeah. we'll get on to the ending. I didn't massively like the ending. It's been running around in my head going didn't it, it spoiled it for me a bit but the journey there absolutely loved and but, but like i was saying the um i think that's a mixture of that very 70s mixture of of uh, technology versus superstition is obviously was obviously kind of part of the era i guess because we're very much about to annihilate ourselves with nuclear weapons um maybe there was a nuclear and at the same time there were there was still the sort of Nuclear, atomic. <laughs> I can't say nuclear, apparently. Um, but, um, but yeah, but but then then we've also got the sort of fallout from you know, no pun intended, but from the from the cultural revolution of you know the the hippies and the age of Aquarius and yeah, all that gubbins. Um, so I guess as a dramatist, it's quite fun to go well. Let's pitch these two people against each other. And you see it. Don't again and again and again and I guess the sort of gold standard of this is the exorcist because yeah. that that is technically superstition in a huge big Oscar winning movie um, and the legend of Hell House is like a you know it's like a 
is is good, but it's a tiny little footnote compared to the Exorcist. Yeah, yeah. Although um, um, Richard Matheson did say that, um, or, or at least something I read suggested that he was quite irritated that Hell House came out uh, five months before The Exorcist, I think. So mm. no, nobody noticed it. Whereas then this movie came out that suddenly made horror films respectable. Mm-hmm. And, and and he felt like the, the Hell House might have been taken more seriously after the fact. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll never know, but I do think Hell House is definitely in the... Even though it's different, it's definitely in that sort of horror, that sort of hammer horror. Um, there's, there's definite elements of crossover where it's a bit hammy. Oh, yeah. Well, that's as well as... as, my... well as Whereas The Exorcist isn't hammy at all, I would argue... I guess I guess some people take the special effects and stuff. I mean, I think you're probably but it's very right. Naturalistic, whereas yeah. this is still, it's you know, and that's kind of half the fun of it. It's still spooky shadows and old places, and then it has something that wouldn't look out of place on it. John Pertwee, Doctor Who, rolling in to uh, <laughs> <laughs> to, um, uh, to 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 uh, to uh, vibrate away the evil. Oh, you mean the yeah the machine? Yeah, that's yeah, that's fair machine. enough. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the fact that um, it's interesting that Howard, in his little spiel, compared described the style of it as kind of documentary-like. Um, mm. w- whereas I think that I don't quite agree with that. I would describe The Exorcist as being quite documentary-like, and that's yeah. like you say, Ian. That's where the naturalistic style comes from. The Legend of Hell House is full of like big weird close-ups and crazy angles and uh, and um, wide lenses, and it's great. It's really well handled in that oh, way. Yeah. But it can there's lots of it that makes you kind of realise this is a movie. It's a piece of entertainment. I don't think you quite settle yeah. into it um, and believe it's real life, even though I think some of the performances. Oh, well, all the performances really. There's only four actors in it. Um, that you know, they they are they are very um, truthful. I think, although yeah, yeah, no, they're, no, the cast are excellent. Uh, but but they, maybe they are playing yeah. slightly heightened versions of reality that you wouldn't get in a movie. Yeah, like and, the, and the the script is excellent. I mean, it's it's quite a clear script in that you know, there's no there's no flab. I think on the the uh, sort of fusion of character and structure, you can tell. You can tell. You know, you're in the hands of a really good writer, which Matheson is. Um, it's uh, it's you know, everyone, everyone's got everyone's got their own thing going on. Thing, everyone changes in a certain way, or they, in the case of you know, in the case of the scientist, he doesn't change and is broken. He he constantly, you know, if you. Uh, you know, if you want a narratively uh, pleasing, dramatically pleasing death, then get someone to uh, not get over their floor. He yeah. he doesn't see the, he doesn't see you know the evidence of his own eyes. He's even though he's quite happy to explain away poltergeist and stuff, um, and he says, "But it doesn't mean there's an evil spirit. It just means there's energy coming from people's brains." <laughs> yeah, not 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 evil spirits surviving after death, which is quite good as well because. That, that that sort of obstinacy is uh, is quite a good character flaw, um, and it's you know it reminds me of when you've got Brian Cox just just the other week saying you know there aren't ghosts because they break 
third law of thermodynamics. There just aren't. <laughs> there aren't ghosts. Um, and you could imagine going, well, this is not happening because someone survived after death. This is happening because of something science hasn't explained yet. Yeah. Um, so, so I like all that. And then on the other side, and then obviously it's got, it's got, um, it's, um, it's, it's got um, Pamela um, in the middle um, as a, Sorry, I forget her name. I'll just um, interrupt you there, um, Ian, because I want to go back to your last point. Um, yeah. I'll cut around it. You've mentioned a couple of times on this podcast um, about how ghosts break the third law of thermodynamics, and in order to seem knowledgeable, I've not gone, what's that mean? Um, it, <laughs> does that roughly mean entropy increases, or is that a different thermodynamic law? I have to say that my knowledge of physics isn't as good as it was when I was 15. Well, I gave up physics when I was when I was about thirteen, fourteen. So, uh, right. We have a system approaches a constant value as the temperature approaches absolute zero. Is all I can remember. He says reading Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Because I know there's the there's the, there's another law, or it might be the same law that's called the law of conservation of energy. I heard someone say that. Um, gremlins could not exist because they break the, the law of conservation of energy by the way they reproduce. So I'm, I'm wondering if all these supernatural creatures break the same laws. Yeah, and also bees can't fly. Anyway. So we're we're told by John yeah. Persway. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, but but uh, don't. But we'll probably you 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 set me off on a massive tangent which I'm trying to resist. Okay, well I, I, I will keep you to the story then. Of Star Trek Discovery, the latest episode, they have a ridiculous thing involving where they say molecules of people from different dimensions um, uh, you know, the from the mirror universe and things yeah. like that. They will start breaking down because they want to go back from where they started and I'm a bit like I'm a bit like, no, because molecules, all the molecules started with the Big Bang. So they're not going to want to go back to uh, <laughs> in time quite a long way along a universe's billions of years after the Big Bang. That oh, you oh right, okay. But anyway, bizarre, right? I, I'm, I, I'm I'm getting annoyed at things like that when I, while I'm watching Star Trek, beaming people to the you know teleporting zoom or whatever. Like, yeah, so anyway. uh, this this but, is um, why I don't watch Discovery. I know myself too well on that level. But I think you were just about to talk a little bit about the medium in The Legend of Hell House, who is yeah, Florence yeah, so Tanner, played by Pamela Franklin. Franklin, and and she, yes, yeah, she and obviously she's there as a counterpoint to to uh, to the to the scientist, the physicist. So she she as well is is. Uh, is punished for believing too much in what she believes. So I guess if there's a theory, it's that it's, and I think it does, uh, much as I don't actually like the ending, it does all thematically tie together. It does. It, it, I think it all ties into ego um, and, and, and a refusal to, to sort of budge. And the person who succeeds is the guy in the middle who, who realises you know, he's able to combine the best of both approaches, which is a yeah. theme in the ending of the film and yeah. a theme in the book. Um, Tim, yeah, he, um, you he, look like you're desperate to say something. Well, no, he, he actually says himself, isn't it? It's, it's Ben Fisher, the character, isn't it? Yes, the Roddy McDowell yeah, character. Yeah. Roddy McDowell character. He even says himself that he said that um, 
Florence Tanner and uh, Lionel, Dr. Lionel Barrett, both were on the right track. They just weren't quite there, but they combined, they, they mm. combined their ideas. Yep. They get the answer. And by doing that, he gets the answer. And that's why, for me, the ending isn't so much of a disappointment because everything leading up to it um, is so intense that once, once it is all over, for me, it's almost a, you know, it's a sigh of relief. So like, oh, thank yeah. God for that. And, and, and in a way, you mentioned, you mentioned um, The Exorcist. The Exorcist kind of does that as well with, you know, it all ending very suddenly with, 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 mm. um, with the priest jumping out the window. And that's it. It's suddenly, it's, just, it's over. Um, but The Exorcist does it in a better way. I would say it's in, in a much more satisfying way. But I don't mind the ending to, to um, The Legend of Hell House so much because everything leading up to it, yeah, I say, is so intense. Tim, did you I, I have think... a chance? Sorry, Ian. Um, I was just going to ask Tim. Yeah. Did you have a chance to read or listen to the book? Uh, no, I haven't. Um, okay. But I do plan. To, I do plan to do so on the run to Christmas in good old tradition of of the Legend of Hell House. Great. Well, um, well, well, I won't mention more about that yet. But the the original novel by Matheson is out of print, but you can listen to it on Audible. There's an unabridged reading, uh, yeah. and I gave it a listen, and. Um, in a way, the the films are generally quite faithful, and all those themes are there in the novel and brought out more. And when we get to talk about the ending, um, we can talk about how the novel, uh, by kind of foregrounding those themes, makes the ending more satisfying. I think. Um, mm. But what were you going to say, Ian? Well, I, I think we're probably in danger of talking about the ending because I think the main. I, I don't. I like the fact that that Roddy McDowell is this broken man who doesn't think he knows anything and he's just actually there to, uh, he's got a lot going on. He's just there to cash in on being there and try not to actually do anything, then decides to do anything. He's got a good journey. And then by being, by being the person who's open to realise that both the other, the other two people who are basically have got much more confidence and much more ego, whereas he, was the opposite he was a man rebuilding himself um and then i like the fact that the enemy is is somebody who before death realized how life after death works in the universe of the book um and put up technological things a bit like a modern day pharaoh you know yeah you know, he picked up the shielding and he puts up all this um what what i don't like is is the whole oh and he was a short man <laughs> yes why okay. he was so angry well so hang on a minute I before don't know why we needed that i well, don't know why we needed that well before we go there prosaic. yeah before we go there because i i do feel that there's a danger that i mean to be honest i like this film a lot and there's loads to talk about that's good mm. but i feel like the ending is so bizarrely off-putting and especially mm. in comparison to the book um, which is the same ending but just done slightly differently. Um, that I feel like if we start talking about it, we'll pull pull the ending to bits and spend most of our time doing that. And yeah, I'd yeah. rather talk about the things that are great. Um, so yeah. Tim, I think you, you're in a good position to talk about some of the things that that you love the most about this movie. Um, I've already mentioned its, its, its intensity, um, yeah. but I forgot actually how intense the film was. It really doesn't let let up from the, from the very start all the way up to the, the, the end of the climax, as it were, which is pretty much the end of the film. 
um, it just keeps it keep it pulls you in and it keeps you there for the whole film. Now, I know you mentioned Dan how you you know you're watching a movie you do because it it's it's, it's shot beautifully and it's shot in such a way that that you are reminded constantly that you are watching a film. It it is almost um, like how I said it, it has a, it, it 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 tends to go for the documentary with the way it almost follows thing in sort of semi real time. Yeah. Um, but at this but at the same time it's still incredibly cinematic, whereas um, something like The Exorcist would have a much more documentary feel. Um, I mean, that is pretty sh- that's shot beautifully as well, but there are a lot more scenes in that which, which feel more naturalistic than, than are in The Legend of Hell House. Yeah, and I um, think it's The Exorcist has a kind of subtlety to it, which means that you might not realise how c- cinematic it is. I mean, when I first saw it, which was on a video, a pirated video, because remember it was... It was banned, The Exorcist, in this country for a long time. But I saw, first saw it. <laughs> I saw it in a pirated video. And, and I saw it quite soon after I'd seen The Omen. And, you know, on a kind of poor... On a TV screen, in slightly poor quality, it didn't look that amazingly cinematic. You didn't get the feel of the great sound design and stuff. So I, was, I did find it quite flat. But then I saw, I saw it a few years later on the big screen and was amazed by the things that they do. I actually think The Legend of Hell House, if you reduce it to a videotape on your TV, it will probably stand up quite well. The style will probably come across quite well. And I'd like to talk for a moment about the director, John Hoff. Um, you mentioned, Ian, that you still feel that this is kind of quite in the hammer area. Um, mm-hmm. Howard said that it's not, it's moving forward. I'm in the middle, I think it's a transitionary film. Um John Hoff was a TV director who became a film director and he had directed a Hammer film, one of the best Hammer vampire movies, Twins of Evil, in 1971, which, if you've not seen it, check it out. It's got a great decapitation in it. Um, and then and then, it, then he did this, and it's just... I mean, uh, it, he did he, it, on this movie, he's teamed with the cinematographer Alan Hume, who later did movies like... Return of the Jedi and For Your Eyes Only, most of the later Roger Moore Bond films, and Life Force and things like that. And before going to the cinema, he he lit episodes of The Avengers, which is where John Hoff came from. Mm-hmm. The sets are also designed by an Avengers alumnus, uh, Robert James. Um, and I, I, the, the kind of visual aesthetic of it is constantly arresting, I think. Um, combined with the amazing sound design, I think this is the only movie to be scored by Brian Hodgson and Delia Derbyshire, formerly of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, the very team who created the amazing theme tune to Doctor Who and turned it, transformed it from being the kind of funky tune that its composer Ron Grainer intended and turned it into a landmark piece of pioneering electronica that's just lived forever um and this is a really great throbbing insistent weird musical score but at the same time it's completely non-melodramatic The music isn't saying to you, you must be scared, you must be scared, all the time, which kind of um, a lot of horror movies have, especially in the kind of hammer era. Yeah, it's yeah. just it's 
there and it's it's kind of insisting, it's working on your nerves. Yeah, well, exactly, it's, it's, it's more saying to you something is going to happen um, and you may not want to stick around to find out, but if you do, do so at your peril. And then you don't just have the music, you also have the ambient noise throughout the whole film, which is reminding you that there is a presence there and it's not a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, sound, it sounds amazing. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's definitely, and that, that again gives it that link to that sort of classic era of BBC. Look at the windows. He had them bricked up so no one could see in. Or out. And again, Doctor Who and Quatermass and Nigel Neal and, and all that sort of where technology meets spooky, 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 the spooky end of the genre. I mean, yeah, you well, can imagine this plot as as a Quatermass or a Doctor Who. Oh yeah, um, or, or even the Avengers if they uh, wanted to go down that route for a, for a week. Well, I'll, I'll mention that actually because um, some of John Hoff's episodes of the Avengers, and he also directed some of the new Avengers, which was made after this. Mm. They are quite atmospheric and frightening. In fact, there's an episode of the Avengers called Cat Among the Pigeons, which mm. is like. Um, a homage to the birds, essentially. And I watched it on TV when I was about 14 and thought it was one of the most frightening things I'd ever seen on television. And I've watched it again since, and it still is rather good. It's got a really excellent kind of nerve-jangling musical score in it by Laurie Johnson. And it's got that same thing that John Hoff does on this. He loves his low angles and his wide Mm. angles and, and has a weird way of making people appear kind of hulking because of how low down the camera is, but it also makes them seem vulnerable because they're surrounded by a lot of space, which is kind of the opposite of what they tell you works when it comes to film school type stuff, you know. Mm. It's all about, yeah. you put the camera high up to make the characters look small and, and things like that. So I, th- I think that that's really good. John Hoff, by the way, he did continue to make horror films, although he went to America and got involved with Disney. The third Disney film mm. that he made was a, the, a Disney attempt at a horror film in the same year as The Black Hole. They also made a kind of alien ghost story, again, Nigel Neal-esque, and it has a writing credit for Brian Clemens from The Avengers. Um, and it's called The Watcher in the Woods and mm. stars David McCallum. Um, and an, uh, an inter- I can't remember who the female lead is, but it's a kind of an international cast. Oh, and I think Betty Davis is in it. Um, and that's that's quite interesting. You can't find it on Disney Plus, unfortunately. It's one of the ones <laughs> they seem to have missed. But um, I, I wouldn't mind checking that out again. Also, Ian, because you know you do mention Nigel Neal quite a lot. I've always kind of liked Richard Matheson and thought of him as the American equivalent to Nigel Neal. You know, both of these are literary guys who were very key to really early genre, um, you know, telefantasy. I mean, Matheson wrote a lot of the most memorable episodes of the original Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they both kind of went from TV to movies. They both worked for Hammer. um, And Mm -hmm. they both ended up kind of working in the 80s with the kind of young up-and-coming directors who'd grown up on their stuff. So um, Nigel Neal, as we've discussed on this podcast, wrote the third Halloween film, which was going to be directed by Joe Dante, but then wasn't. Um, Richard Matheson wrote the third Jaws film, which was going to be directed by Joe Dante, but then wasn't. Wow. So, so they have these really interesting kind of parallel careers. Um, 
I think they're both um, they're both like their sort of shtick, if you like, um, is to get the stuff that we've always liked, like ghosts and and things that go bumping tonight, but give them sort of give them a veneer of science to uh, you know to to sort of as their way in, which makes them a bit different. I mean, even in I Am Legend, it's all about you know a very scientific explanation for why the vampire plague takes over. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so so that sort of finding explanations and then pitching our way of our society and our our technological society with the more sort of uh, tuned in primitive primitive in quotes society pitching them against each other. Um, yes, yeah. but uh, another another aspect that I kind of wasn't expecting for some reason um, because I've seen so many of these films and they're very. Um, they tend to be what goes bumping tonight, but actually the carnality in uh, Legend of Hell House is quite full on. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could possibly accuse it of being sexist because there's a lot of heaving bosoms. Um, um, I'll talk about that. <laughs> um, yes. Well, I would say this is where Matheson and Nigel Neal part company because Nigel Neal stuff is generally not very sexy. And I remember that when I was involved in the stage version of his play, The Year of the Sex Olympics, I mean, that is the one Nigel Neal text, which is kind of about sex. But even then, it's kind of about sex in a very limited way. At one point, um, we had to decide whether we were going to have any kind of hints at gay characters anywhere in it. Um, and it was decided, no, because I don't think Nigel Neal knows what a gay person is. Um, he, 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 you know, he just doesn't think about sex that much and he's making a kind of political point and he's not thinking about it beyond that. Um, on the other hand, Matheson's Hell House, the novel, is extremely sexual. They've really toned it down quite a lot for the movie. Well, not quite a lot, hugely. Um, however, they've done it in a really effective way which mostly kind of hints at what is explicit in the book i mean it reminds me of um again it reminds me of the difference between the film exorcist and the book because uh, they're both very explicit and the movie of the exorcist found ways to do things like you know the crucifix masturbation scene and stuff it's like we'll put that on the screen but we'll we'll kind of make it quite a brief shock we won't linger on it whereas in hell house there are kind of similar elements and the filmmakers have obviously thought, we can't put that on the screen, but we're going to suggest it as much as we can. I mean, it's so mm. um, it's so explicitly graphic in the book. I mean, I think, again, you were talking, Ian, about the thing that, he, he, that Matheson might have decided to bring to it to make the difference between himself and Shirley Jackson. I think one thing is the scientific oh. aspect, and the other thing is the um the sexual aspect and it, it is sexist in the sense that uh there's a lot of sexual violence hinted at or actually perpetrated mm. in the novel but it's all toward the two female characters the men are punished in other ways um, yeah also i mean i don't know about the novel but in the thing the the men the men you Again, you wouldn't think they knew what sex was because they're very much they, yeah. they never even released a button, and and you know and uh, Roddy Madell's character 
is amazingly able to resist. And the women, <laughs> like the slightest little whisper in the ear, and they're like, "Oh my goodness, unleash, unleash my feminine." <laughs> well, it's clear that his psychic ability was not the only thing he was blocking off, was it? Well, well. there is. That. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean, this this isn't just in this. I, I I was thinking it's something we never got around to talking about when we were talking about um, Bram Stoker's Dracula movie. Mm. Um, the other week in the which the listener hasn't heard yet but no, but no will which, hear soon yeah which is which well i didn't talk about this aspect of it because we, we we talked at such length yeah uh, afterwards I was oh i never got onto that note but which is the it's that kind of thing that you often have in the horror genre you get it with the wicker man you get it with you, know, you and you get it that that the bad guys the devil has the best tunes kind of thing. The bad guys are actually fun. So so you always have them going, we want, we just have sex whenever we want. Just imagine. That's how evil we are. Um, mm. So you're kind, of, you're kind of having that cake and eat it thing, which is that the, the society they're dealing with is, is titillating us by showing us sex. At the same time, keeping it very much. Sex is something bad people do. Um, and you know, so you've got Dracula, who's who's just like hedonistic. It seems like he's having a wonderful life, and uh, I bet he's great in the be- great in bed. Um, and at the same time, he's very much a baddie, and you can't possibly have you know he's a baddie who's put up against Jonathan Harker, who's shit in bed, um, and you know he's got no lead in his pencil. Um, and uh, and in the same thing here, you've got you know. We've got boring physicist, physicist man, and his wife, his his, uh, his sexy wife, who's must spend most of her time putting her makeup on, um, who, who, uh, who, at the slightest provocation, becomes a raging nympho. Well, that's and, a and, and the other fe- and the other oh. female character, who's apparently quite churchy, decides a good way to do it is to. Uh, have sex with a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, now, uh, Dan, Dan, when, when, when we were doing a, re- we, a rewatch of that, you did actually message me saying, I feel very uncomfortable at that scene. <laughs> Was it? Well, it's a, rape, yeah. it's a rape scene, isn't it? So. Yeah, but again, it, it, it's suggestive, but it doesn't take much to work out what's going on. And no, I understand yeah, when, yeah. I understand when, when my mother, when she caught me watching it, said, you're not watching now. I understand now. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't think there's particularly anything wrong with it per se but it's a rape scene and especially because a she's a bit tricked but then when you find out and i think that's one of the best bits in the film in fact because it's almost like i imagine what she saw when she has the scream when she realizes when she realizes it's not daniel that she's uh, let yeah. into her it's actually it's it's actually the only what's his name the actual main bad guy yeah yeah Belasco. yeah right, in the face of a demon they have that really good line so you don't even need to show it the fact that you then realise she's been violated, she's been tricked, and she's and she's been violated by somebody that we can't even imagine how horribly looks. Yeah. Until we see him at the end of the film, he doesn't look that horrible. <laughs> yes. So, kind of uh, doesn't make sense either. But, uh, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not necessarily saying it's a bad thing or anything because you have to you have to pick sides. You have to have binaries in drama. Yeah. It's just it's just so often, you know. Especially the further back you go towards that sort of Judeo-Christian bedrock, when you have sex is something that the baddies do, the pagans do, 
Um, yeah. And you um, can play with that. I mean, in The Wicker Man, you play with that because you're not necessarily 100% on on Sergeant Howie's side. He's yeah. such a stick in the mud. And he's punished for that. So you get to decide who's right and who's wrong. Um, and the answer is they're both right because the pagans are murdering bastards. And, uh, <laughs> and, the, uh, and the police Good job, officer... Kirsty's not hearing. Yeah, and well... In the film, I mean, yeah, and, yeah, the, uh, and the police and the police officer um, needs to get laid uh, without without going to the lengths of uh, having orgies and burning people on beaches. Yeah. So, <laughs> but uh, but it's a similar thing here. You've you've got, you know, why is it that Satanists have to be all about orgies and unbridled sex and and uh, you know and the things that happened in this room were you know the carnality. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Um, it's, it's it's not. Yeah. Go on. Tim. It's not just it's not just sex. It's 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 deviance, and that that that's what was suggested um, towards the beginning by Fisher. He right. even as I say you don't need to hear the gory details. All um all you have to do is have Roddy Modell just stand there and list all the worst things you can possibly think of that have taken place in this one house. What did he do to make this house so evil, Mister Fisher? Drug addiction, alcoholism, sadism. Bestiality, mutilation, murder, vampirism, necrophilia, cannibalism, not to mention a gamut of sexual goodies. Shall I go on? How did it end? If it had ended, we would not be here. And then, of course, when you have you have uh, Mrs. Barrett becoming extremely sexual, but not in a, not in a good way. She's cheating on her husband. And then you have later right. on Tanner being, being, being raped by a spirit. When you combine all those two together, you, you, you are seeing the worst side of the supernatural influence over the house. Um, yeah. And that, that for me is what, is what frightens me most about the film. That's what I find scary about, about the film is these incredibly dark themes that are not thrown into your face, but they're so subtle. They get right under your skin. Yeah. yeah. But also, also, and if it wasn't just all aimed at the women being repressed, because the men are very repressed and none of them, you know, Oh yeah, that's true. You know, well, you, but they, no, they they don't get they don't get they don't get um, they don't get raped or seduced or not not even you know not not by the by this by this uh, this carnal being. Um, no, I mean who, there are one things. One of the boxes that worship of Priapus and and all the all the things that he's uh, you know he's. Uh, but for the purpose during this haunting, I'm going to be very heterosexual. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it, 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 he is, and all he wants to do is get rid of the, any any men, any men, any man there. He wants to get rid of. So the only one he can attack, of course, is 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 Lionel Barrett, which he does with in abundance. I mean, there's a, there's, yeah. there's that scene where well, where he thinks it's um where he thinks it's Florence directing yeah. all of her anger at him. Um, yeah, the making the table rock the and, and throwing all the objects at him and, yeah. and the and the chandelier almost killing him and everything else. Yeah, um, brilliant oh. scene and you know a wonderful, a wonderful part of the film and the, and the part really of the film where you where you, re, where you really do realise um, um, how dangerous the situation is they're in. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I yeah. want to talk about for a second how great the cast are, but I want to preface that by comparing them to the characters in the book. Um, so they're generally very well cast um, to the characters in the book, but they, there are certain changes which maybe make the, the movie slightly 
less layered than the book is. So, for instance, uh, Ian, you were talking about the, um, the the kind of difference in the sexual perspective between um, Dr. Barrett and his wife. He seems very sexless, and um, mm. and she there's kind of hints that she's very repressed, but you don't know why in the book because there's obviously a lot more room for internal monologue. You know that. Um, they are in a sexless marriage. She comes from a very Puritan background, and he's actually impotent because of polio. So, yeah. that, so, so that they they both have kind of great sexual hang-ups, which mm. kind of come out at, at, at the slightest provocation. And in the book, Florence Tanner is a lot older. I have a feeling that they made her young in the film just so they could cast Pamela Franklin, because. Mm. Um, Albert Fennell, who produced this movie, was a co-producer on The Innocents and also produced a, a movie she starred in called Unsoon the Darkness. So they, they mm. had a relationship there. And she's great and she's she, she suits the character. But in the book, Florence is a lot older. And before she was a medium, she was a Hollywood actress. So, oh, God, so she's, she's, she's her soul's lost. Well, well actually, <laughs> she kind of... Um, she backed away from Hollywood towards religion because she felt that, you know, it was too decadent. And it, and yeah. it took her a while to realise that. So, you know, there are reasons in her character for her to have layers of repression as well. I do find that's interesting about her character is the fact that she's not just spiritual. She's not just a medium. She's also religious as well and, and does say that rather explicitly. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I, I do think it's I think a she's shame. a fantastic character because she's really strong as well. I think we'd be wrong in considering the house as the haunting force. Quite evidently, the problem is created by multiple surviving personalities. I take it that you still don't believe in survival, Dr. Barrett. If by that you mean surviving personalities, you're quite correct. We will see. Okay, yeah, no, I, th me. I think she, I think she acts... Um, the way she behaves is great. The thing she does and says and the way that Pamela Franklin performs it is great. But I, d I did kind of miss the fact that she's got this interesting background in the book. And for the movie, they took that away because obviously I don't think she's old enough to have had that history. But they didn't replace yeah. it with anything. You don't know that much about where Florence has come from or, mm -hmm. or kind of what motivates her. But I think... On screen, I guess she's I didn't, a fantastic I didn't, miss any, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't miss anything because I just got the impression she'd kind of got this second sight thing, and it basically, you know, a bit like The Shining or something. She's always had this curse, and she says it's not easy. Yeah. So I just kind of got the impression this has been her blessing and her curse, and because her way of dealing with it is to see it as as something from God. Yeah. About okay. evil. And that I, I, all worked, but well, I guess I guess her problem her problem was also she she's probably did, she'd probably got away from God and was making about ego because she was so sure of her way of her way of seeing the world was right, just the same as the physicist. Okay, so, uh, that's that's my reading of it. It's it's very much ego. Uh, well, that again, that thematically fits in with the film and with the revelations about Belasco later. I do think uh, the movie maybe missed a trick in making Florence young like that. I think they could have drawn parallels between her, or maybe they did, and and I missed it because I'm thick. So if you guys think they did this, let me know. But you know, Roddy McDowell's character uh, Benjamin, 
he first mm. entered the house as a child medium 20 years ago and now he's returning yeah. that's um, the bit that that's the bit that i was a bit when he keeps talking about 1953 i'm like what 1953 they don't for some reason it didn't lodge with me that he was a child when it happened right okay um, yeah um, i don't know if that's just because well, you find out later that, 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 that he was a teenager, wasn't he? He was 15, apparently, when he, when he was originally in the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For some reason, that didn't lodge with me, so it was a bit of a, it was a, bit of a jolt when I realised, oh, so what's he been doing for 20 but, years? But, but, but if you want, yeah, if you want backstories, I mean, he's probably the one you know, you know the most about. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. He, he, he talks about uh, what happened before. And I do think well, that McDowell is... I mean, he's the central character. Yeah, he is. Um, because he... He's he's the person that has has the most journey to go on and also saves the day. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and yeah, I think McDowell the... is fantastic. Um, I really do. Yeah, yeah. I've, I was just reading up on him today. I mean, I love Great, I love him uh, ever since I saw all the Planets of the Apes movies in which he plays different apes yeah. throughout. And he's just so impressive the way that he sells different character. Uh, motivations and types uh, and emotions through that same ape makeup for five movies or four. He's yeah. in four of them, I think. Um, yeah. And and I always kind of thought of him as a horror star, um, mm. but then I, I I went back and double checked it today. Actually, he's in this and he's in the two Friday Night films, and those mm. are pretty much his only horror films, unless you count he's in the Austin Wells movie of Macbeth, which is sometimes thought of as horror. Yeah. Um, but he did direct one of the earliest folk horror films, which was a 1971 Irish movie called The Ballad of Town Lynn. So I'd love to check that out because he had Scottish and Irish heritage, although he, you know, he obviously grew up in America and, and, and worked mostly in America. So he has this wonderful kind of not quite placeable accent. And mm. I think that um, he really invests in this character and i don't know if it maybe it was because the producers thought we can play on the fact that he was a child star and that's basically what benjamin franklin fisher was he was a child mm. star medium mm. uh, and he's lived in the shadow of his young success i love that moment which is directly out of the book which is where the possessed florence says to him you may have been hot stuff when you were 12, but now you're shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of my favourite yeah. lines in the film, actually. Yeah, that's no, great. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think maybe for that reason, it's funny that the movie has more backstory about him and about the previous investigation than it does about Belasco and the house. The backstory in the book that's quite disturbing and doesn't really get into the film is all about the way Belasco would kind of host orgies which would last for months and years and and people would not be allowed to leave the house and he would get them addicted to, to drugs and they'd end mm. up kind of eating each other but because he he never allowed people to leave nobody ever knew that this was going on um you know to the outside world the belasco house was like a social haven for, for mm. rich decadent people but actually inside it was a house of horrors and I did mm. find that quite chilling whereas in the movie I think you learn a lot more about the previous investigation and how that went wrong including mm. that amazing speech which I'm going to play a clip of 
which in which uh, McDowell kind of explains what happened to a lot of the other researchers, and yeah. the actor actually is weeping as he says it. Is that your proof? How do you know you haven't been deluding yourself? How do you know that he isn't just a figment of your imagination? How do you know his personality isn't exactly what you made of it? How do you know? I just know I'm right. Yes, and we all knew we were right 1953, too. <laughs> Grace Lauder, a successful medium for... For 20 years. She jumped off the balcony and she shattered both her legs. Dr. Graham, a physicist, he crawled out of this house to die. Professor Rand, head of the chemistry department at the University of Oxford, Professor Fenley, psychic investigator, crippled and insane to this day. It's an amazing close-up. It's one shot. Yeah, um, no, no, I'm, I've made a note of that. that there's, some, there's some impressive dialogue, just in general. I mean, he, you know, Matheson is a top-notch writer. Um, it just, it, it's just, it does all come down to the whole was there not something better than than the legs thing? Well, are we um, going to talk about the ending now? Do we think that this is the time? Have I we... think this is a wonderful time to do so. Okay, I would like to read the two of you a quote from this marvellous book, English Gothic, by Jonathan Rigby. Mm -hmm. And I read... Um, a, this is the book that led me to a lot of the British horror films that I now love, and it's got two pages about the legend of Hell House. And this is from near the end of the... Mostly quite positive review, but it says Exposing Belasco's prosthetic legs, Ben solemnly informs us that he so despised his own shortness that he had both his legs cut off and wore those instead to give himself height. Woman-hungry trees, sentient ivy, giant death's head moths, British horror offers all these and more, but nothing so breathtakingly stupid as this. So all the paranormal unpleasantness at Hell House was merely the result of somebody having a complex about his height. Pull the other one. That's exactly Ian, how comment. I felt, to be honest. It, um, I think I called, I don't know if you noticed what I called our Zoom call. I did uh, notice, yeah. Was, was you know, it's, it's a Napoleon complex. And I just don't think there was any need for the legs thing there was no need for it we could have just had a really really fucking evil man at the center of this awful awful thing who wanted to live forever because he's an immortal fuckhead satanist <laughs> and, and he knows and he knows the science stuff so that makes him tough and it uh, you know that that is all fine all up until the point of of the legs thing like, it's well, the, a strange way of the, getting to it, isn't it? How do you react to that ending, Tim? 
Uh, well, I like it when he basically says that final bit. You weren't even five. Was it? Yeah, you weren't even five foot tall. And then yes. you, just, you just you just hear Belasco go, ah, and then it, that's it. Yeah. And that moment, I, I just said to myself, yeah. But at that moment, <laughs> at that at that moment, I said to myself, well, actually, at that moment there was like silence, you know, where I was sitting, and then suddenly I just said, well, you know, the truth hurts. <laughs> well, yeah. And, you know, I mean, I. And, and, oh, that's, all, that's all they had to say. <laughs> it's funny that in the novel the ending is the same, but it's just the emphasis is slightly different. So, um, in the novel, Ben defeats Belasco because he realised that, as you've been hinting at, Ian, that everything in the house has been ego motivated, and that mm-hmm. Belasco is just a guy who desperately needs to be regarded as great. So, Ben you know, verbally abuses him and belittles him until he does, his power does dissipate. And so that big speech of McDowell's where he shouts all that stuff, that does happen, but he's not talking about his legs. He's just talking about how he's uh, a fake and a fraud and a bastard and all this stuff. And then after the power dissipates, then they go into the the kind of um, the lead-lined coffin room and find his corpse and discover that he's got fake legs and Ben says oh yes look even this makes sense he had such a huge ego that he he had to make himself appear tall and he does yeah, actually that... say that line that's that's been quoted by Jonathan Rigby but he says it in that context and I think that would have been more effective I don't know no, why it's, it's, I, so in the book they don't have the whole now what is it that I'm missing oh he crippled everybody, did he? Was no, that's not in the book. I mean, it, no, no. he, he is... That feels a bit silly. That's that's where it literally is like, talk about talk about the journey being fun, and then we didn't quite arrive at the destination because he decided to fucking go off a cliff. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you know, that that to me is why... Sorry, I'm going to make... make Make Tim cry here, but um, or wear my wear, wear my teeth on his face or whatever as you like to do. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, just you wait. But I think this is why this isn't this isn't quite a classic because right. it's a it's a it's like that that review is right. It's one of the most ridiculous reveals, especially in the middle of a you know, especially yeah. in the middle of what has been a really good a really good film based on a book that sounds like it didn't make that mistake. So this is an addition for the movie. Well, the book does do that. It just does it better. Yeah, yeah. I it's think all it sounds to me like... So, yeah, so it's they basically, it's... it and then found out, oh, he's, he's, look, at his, look at his body. He's not even tall. Yeah, whereas it's, it's, in the movie... It seems like... Sorry, Tim, you go. Uh, well, I was just going to say, it seems like in the film it's just not so clear what they're trying to get at here. They're trying to get at that his power is his ego... Yeah, and once you take that away, that's his power gone. Unfortunately, the the thing about the legs just seems so trivial in the film; it just mm. distracts from the whole point. And I think that's yeah. possibly why it's it's a bit of a letdown in the film. Yeah, yeah, and 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 he can and Matheson can complain all he likes about the Exorcist coming along, but I don't think this film would be seen in any higher regard. I don't think it would have done massive amounts because it's got that ridiculous bit. Yeah, and he's. It, it's made me really want. I mean, this is a this is a book that's primed for a good old remake mm. because, like, it's perfect in lots of ways, and you just keep the crap out that he put into his own version. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I know that <laughs> I, I think I mentioned to you that it, it was known that Matheson was disappointed when he saw the film. I do think they might have changed bits. I haven't been able to find out which. So possibly mm. he didn't write that ending in that way. Maybe that was something that was changed on the set or whatever. Maybe. Or maybe or, the pacing of it was different. Or But, it, yeah. but, but again, that's a massive change because that it, the whole the whole epiphany um, that Roddy Madal has is to do with why why does he cripple everybody? That's why. Yeah. Everyone crawls out. So so that's 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 the destination that we have is that it all comes down to finding out about his legs. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. So that's how to defeat this demon. <laughs> no, that it, is it, terrible. It is, and there's no there's, and that's why you know I've, I've, you know the Wicker Man came out the same year, didn't it? Yeah. Wicker Man, the destination of the Wicker Man, you could argue is better than the journey. The journey yeah, is yeah. thing. But the destination of the Wicker Man is, I mean, there's, there's not a fucking ending in many things that's as good as that. Yeah. This is the opposite. Well, this, is, this is, like I was saying, this is getting on a lovely train and going to Milton Keynes. Um, it's, I mean, yeah. <laughs> this might explain why I watched the film. 17 years ago and although I enjoyed it very much I've never really wanted to watch it again because I think mm -hmm. the ending does does dampen it a bit but Tim you were going to say something oh no I was just mentioning the Wicker Man that when uh, me and a friend of mine first watched it together uh, when when the credits rolled you know as as the uh, as the, as the burning Wicker Man falls you know and out, out of shot and then that's the end of the film we just I think we just sat there for about five minutes and said nothing Right, because just 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 because of that ending, I don't think we get the same reaction with with, with the ending of Legend of the House. I, I will say this: I never really, I was never really that disappointed by the end of the film because, if I, as, as I said at the start of this podcast, for me it was just a relief that it was all over because mm -hmm. it was so intense up to that point. So I've always forgiven the ending. Really, it, it, I, in a way, I never found the ending um, disappointing. I've, I always found it confusing. I never quite understood it. I always, you know, I never quite understood what the what the point was behind the the legs and everything. I, I didn't, I didn't quite put two and two together with it. Um, That's fair. So, it, so, it's, so it's I, I, all I would say is, all I would say <laughs> yeah. is, it still, yeah. All I would say is, it still doesn't bother me that much. Um, and one of the main reasons why it doesn't is because even though it is extremely hammy, I love um, Ronnie McDowell's performance in that final scene. Yeah, he's great, but the yeah, thing yeah. is, that, that scene happens in the book. He's just literally saying different words, and they could still have had that scene, and it and it have yeah. made much more sense. Um, I mean, yeah. you, know, you know, the whole thing where, where he puts things together, oh, he broke their, their legs and all that stuff, that happens in the book, but he's saying, oh, it's all about ego, and he wants to crush other people's egos so so that his own is superior. That's why he broke... Uh, Lionel's faith in science. You know, the, the great thing that mm. Lionel's machine su seems to successfully clear the house mm. and then the power comes back. So just before Lionel dies, the last thing he sees is all his beloved machinery that he trusts exploding. Mm -hmm. So it's like he gets his soul crushed at the moment of death. So it's things like that that point uh, Benjamin to the conclusion. And then he goes, yeah, it's all about ego. And then he takes that and uses that knowledge to defeat the force that is Belasco. Um, and I wonder if they just thought that if they referred to the legs, it might make it more visual or something. But it's yeah. very silly. Um, it's, also, it's also bordering on, yet again, oh, you're disabled, so you're evil. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, bond, bond villain stuff. Um, 
you know, oh, you're a short, you're a short, evil person. Yeah, that's true. Also, and also, you could, you also, you could say that once you see the man behind the curtain, suddenly all the horror just disappears anyway. Well, I would say that, yeah, I mean, in a way... Well, I think it, that's another thing, is you have, you have that silly... Again, it just becomes... It literally, it literally it's racing to the finish line, and it's had me all the way up until they get into that move. And then it's like, what? So it's, that's a bit of taxidermy. They never really explain what he is. Yeah. Um, and then he's got oh. his fucking legs. Yeah, there's two things that make me go, what? And for me, it was just like the whole thing collapsed. Yeah. All you had to do was not be shit at the end, and you'd have raced over the finish line, and it would be amazing. And it's just very (laughs) strange that they they didn't do that, because it was obviously within their power to to have a great ending. Yeah. But if you are a fan of uh, British horror movies like Howard and I are, then it, it is a really nice note that when you finally see Belasco, even though he's nothing like the frightening figure that you imagined he would be, it is Michael Goff just sitting there being paid for not saying anything. And mm. I realised when I watched this this time, that means this movie has two Alfred the Butlers from Batman in it. Goff, and also Clive Reveal was the, the voice of Alfred in the pilot episode of Batman the Animated Series, but they replaced him for the, the main series, which is a shame. Um, we've not mentioned Clive Reveal so far. I love him so much. He's an actor who I, at first, I went on a journey with him because, you know, he was the original Emperor in Star Wars. He was in The Empire Strikes Back, but then they replaced him for Return of the Jedi and for every film since. So I always, somehow that knocked him for me and I always thought he was kind of the more boring alternative. But then I saw him in, I think it is The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes and also another Disney film that you won't see on Disney Plus because it's too racist, which is (laughs) one of our dinosaurs is missing, in which... Is that racist? (laughs) I loved that film when I was a kid. I've not seen it since... I watched it as a double bill, one of my first trips, this is, I'm old, I'm nearly 50, I watched it as a double bill, it was on before The Jumble Book, uh, right. and two films that just blew me away, I think I like One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing More. It's a great but, movie, it's a great movie and I love it, but the fact is, is the villains in it are all Chinese, and uh, the leader Chinese men you know, all the lackeys are played by actual Oriental actors, but the two main speaking ones are played by Clive Reville and Peter Ustinov in very say, exaggerated makeup. You know, for some reason, I just know Peter Ustinov's in that. And, and, I remember, and I remember, I can see his face. And they're doing and, kind of stupid Chinese accents. Yeah, but. five or something. I mean, if you put those performances in a satire about racism or something, though, they'd be great, and they're hilarious. Clive Revel is hilarious in that, and he's also hilarious, in, also in a slightly racist role in, a, in The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, where he plays, like, the, um, the Russian Tsarina's bodyguard or something, and he just turns up in a couple of scenes... Um, he tries to get Sherlock Holmes to come and do a, a job for the Tsarina, and Sherlock Holmes goes, I'm afraid I shall have to decline. I only devote myself to the most extraordinary cases. And Clive Reveal goes, Ah, you will find this 
extra extraordinary. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just like a scene stealing cameo. And, and ever since seeing those two things, I've realized he's great and everything I see him in, I love. Um, Tim, I think you're a bit of a fan of Clive Reville. Well, he has a way of talking that always appeals to me. I mean, the way he says certain lines in the in the film in particular. I mean, he completely. We talked about handy performances, but he really hands up the the pomposity and the arrogance of of his character, and and the way he says uh, Florence's name throughout the film, Miss Tanner, constantly. You know, yeah, yeah. He, he's literally just, you know, he's showing how um, how 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 much he's. He dismisses her abilities and how he looks down upon her uh, yeah, yeah. By, the, by the way he conducts himself with her. Uh, but he also has a, a line in the film. I'm not sure, I don't know if it's in the book, but it's, 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 I don't think it's meant to be funny, but it comes across as one of the funniest lines in the film. And I think you might know what I'm on about here, Dan, because I can see I you smiling. Uh, yeah, but it, it, it's, a, it's a bit where the ectoplasm you know, um, <laughs> forms out, out, of, out of Florence Tanner. And then he just says... Please, was it? Uh, please put a sample in the jar, please. <laughs> yeah. put a, that's it. Put a sample in the jar, please. Yeah, he's very yeah. dead. Not meant to be funny, but that, that is that is just hilarious. That's, yeah. that's a sign of how much the film had me because ectoplasm. I think since Ghostbusters, you just wouldn't put it in a film. Um, yeah, it's it's very much of that era of. It's almost like what they talked about in Victorian times. Yeah, yeah, you. On that point onwards, you sort of would would have it as a thing, and then it became this is too silly. <laughs> to, yeah, of course, because uh, you, you associated that with, with with yeah, as you said, Victorian times, fakes, you know, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't associate that with with something, uh, but that's intended to be slightly more serious than the Legend of Hell House, and yet yeah, because yeah. you're so taken in by it, you just uh, unlike what what uh, Clive Reville says towards the end, you do accept this, you do accept yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Ectoplasm forming, separate filaments exuding from fingertips of both hands, uniting to form two separate strands. Two strands moving toward each other. Ectoplasmic stalk, through net, moving toward table. Leave a sample in the jar, please. The special yeah, yeah. effects are really rather good in that moment. Yeah, and, yeah. and throughout yeah. the film, they're great. Um, again, John Hoff was just very skilled with with these kind of complex effects movies like i said i've just watched escape to witch mountain not the greatest movie ever made but it is really ambitious visually and apart from the bit where um a helicopter is magically turned upside down or flies upside down and it's obviously on a green screen it looks awful but there's loads of complex effects in it and kind of subtle effects um, and he and he handles them really well. It's dated quite well visually that movie, so I think he really knew what he's doing. Oh, by the way, um, one of his later, possibly last horror credits was he directed the fourth Howling film, which probably says something about how desperate his career had got by that mm. point. But yeah, I, I saw quite... that in. Uh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I saw that in his yeah. filmography, and that surprised me. Yeah, I'd quite like to see it, to be honest. <laughs> Um, just out of interest yeah yeah so i mean films. Yeah. that's more than i can say for any other film with howling in the title apart from the original the howling which i have seen yeah 
sorry, go, go on, Tim. I was just going to say that there's a moment with the, with, with, with the jar where it explodes and that's a, a nice little jump scare. You don't get many in the film, but when they do happen, mm. they, are, they are justified and they work. Oh, yeah. The jump scare that really got me was where she finds the dead cat in the shower. That's a brilliantly <laughs> set up scene. Yeah, and the that was that was one of the that was one of the scenes I vividly remember from when I was a kid. I didn't understand what on earth was going on at the time, but uh, yeah, it's it's one that's yeah. always stuck in my mind because it's so visual. That is something that will that does stay with you that moment. Yeah, yeah, you know. And I remember watching the cat bit going on a knife edge here. Am I gonna chortle? Am I gonna laugh? <laughs> just about it just about. I oh, you mean the, the same way? It's like a nanosecond where I go, that looks like a, that looks like a puppet. You mean the same um, way she's being attacked by the fake cats? Yeah. To their credit, I didn't, I, they got away with it. They did yeah. enough real cats and it's not, ah, it's not Tarzan fighting a rubber snake. Yeah. Um, it's well um, edited. But, yeah. 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 But I did. Yeah. When the cat was dead, I did go. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the only main actor we've not really mentioned is Gail Honeycutt, who plays Anne. There is no reason to go back there. You can't solve it. It cannot be solved. You're gonna die. Um, I yeah, just wanna. I think she's really good as well. I think her character suffers because mm. she's the least interesting character, and they've taken away all her backstory because there isn't the detail about the fact that her husband's got polio and is impotent and all that stuff. So she just kind of I stands think, there and reacts to things. Although she yeah, does it I, I very think, well. Without knowing, I think if you'd put in all that stuff, it would have felt too... I think they were right to keep it out. Oh, oh we've had a broadband issue, which means that Tim has disappeared from the call. Uh, because we've nearly done with the discussion, we're just going to finish off without him. He's given us leave to do that. So, um, thanks very much, Tim. Maybe you'll rejoin us before the end if we're very lucky. We'll just finish off talking about the legend of Hell House now. He's gone back into his lead-lined, uh, lead-lined room, hasn't he? <laughs> That's where <laughs> I go. It doesn't work. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's a, a really nice note as well, that um, the last minute after he's defeated Belasco... Roddy McDowell's character goes, actually, this guy was very clever because he had the foresight to have this room lined with lead. Yeah. You know, there's kind of... There are layers to everything in the same way that he Mm. says, you know, Florence wasn't entirely wrong. She was partly right. Lionel was partly right. Mm. Um, Yeah, yeah. No, no, I think think it's a really good little... uh, It is a really good way of seeing the... um, you know, it's got its own little unique spin on supernatural gubbins, um, which is a bit silly, but you know you can forgive it. You know, having a machine called the Reverser is definitely, you know, Quatermass or John Pertwee. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. <laughs> yes. But then, but then, um, you know, it is good. And then, I love my one, almost my favourite bit of it was the fact that it seemed like they'd won. And in my head, I'm going. They obviously haven't won, but how are they going to? How are they going to say the, the evil's still alive? Yeah, and they come in quite a groovy way. Well, it's, because, it's not because that... the technology doesn't work. It's because the technology has been prepared for. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's really so, good. Which sorry, is a really, 
you know, another really good thing. But so. I did feel there's two other things that kind of irked me about the ending, and I keep thinking about it. And having read the book, the book solves these now problems. Now Tim's got the way I feel like we're slagging off his favourite thing behind his back. Oh, <laughs> it, it's it, uh, well. That's... <laughs> Tim, we, we love it, which is why we're being very critical. Um, so yeah, yeah, I find it frustrating it because it could have been, it could have been a perfect little scary movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, although, weirdly, because of watching it for this and reading the book and thinking about it, I do want to watch the film again now mm. because I've just kind of discovering more depth to it. But um, yeah, I think in the book and in concept in the film. The idea that they get rid of the power, but then they don't because he was in a lead-lined room all the time. That was great. However, yeah. I, I didn't quite understand how, because they haven't broken into the lead-lined room at that point. How is Belasco able to, uh, you know, blow up the machinery and kill Lionel? Isn't he trapped in the lead room, or do we think that because he's a ghost he can just leave that room he just retreats into it i don't know a lot about ghosts but can't they walk through walls <laughs> well <laughs> reputedly there is yes. that but i'd in... imagine um yeah 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 no 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 it's um i guess we can forgive it that and just assume that he can live within his inner core refuge yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> in threads um yes. in that kind of lockdown watching threads uh, twice. Fair enough. Um, and um, yeah, and I guess you can just accept. I don't mind that at all. What I really mind is, yeah, hey, they revealed his legs. The, the yeah, fact that yeah. He's a, he's a grand man who actually turns out to be pathetic. Fits in thematically, and I kind of saw that. It's all about ego and pomposity. And yeah, people being yeah. sure of their beliefs, whether they're religious or scientific. And then his monstrous ego that he could beat death. Um, uh, you know, all of that worked. It was just the execution of the the whole leg thing that just kept the leg thing out or done it in a better way. Just really yeah. frustrating. I'd, I'd, I'd love to know. I'd love to know if the actors sort of went to the screening and went, oh, "That was almost a good film for the." Uh, the last five minutes ruin it because they really do. Like, yeah. just is any getting away from it? Um, and Matheson's a writer of such skill uh, that I'm sure he was aware of that himself. Yeah, so, so maybe he Some, didn't somebody, have too much happened. to do with the ending. Maybe yeah, the world something, something ruined. Something ruined that film. But fun funnily enough, I think there's a very similar problem with Hoff's other later horror movie that I mentioned, The uh, the Watcher in the Woods. Mm. The, the ending is really left field, and, and I think that movie is known that there's kind of a m m problems with multiple writers going on, rewriting each mm. other's work, and maybe that happened here, but we just it's just never really been admitted who did it um, mm. and what exactly happened. Um, yeah, the other yeah. thing that slightly irked me about the ending, and I, I wanted your thoughts on this, Ian, as a writer yourself, was, you know, the whole kind of plot setup of the movie is, I want you to go to this house, I'm going to pay you $100,000, you've got one week, and I want you to prove that the afterlife exists because I'm, I'm dying and I'm afraid. 
and yeah, then that completely gets for, well it's well it, if you think it's rubbish that's fine but it doesn't even get referred to it's like it's what gets them to the house but then when they're in yeah. the house they act like they're actually there to defeat what's in the house which is not yeah, what they're I, there for I, th I think again it's it's um one of my favorite words is interrogating a script and i think again it's not necessarily the wrong thing to get them in the house because I think there's a hint um, that they're kind of there. I mean, especially Roddy McDowell's character, he's taking the money. Yeah, yeah. And oh, yeah. That's one, that's one of his sort of personality crimes is that he's just taking the money. And I think they don't, and I think it, maybe it needed a little bit more reference as well. Sometimes it's great watching a film like this, which is almost great. And then you go, what would I do to fix it? Well, it's funny, what again... Draft, what would one more draft have done? If they're all there going, that old man's crazy. Yeah. Uh, we're here to take our money, whether various degrees have been able to admit that to themselves or not. So the Pamela character, uh, yes. she'd yeah. probably be all, oh, no, I'm here to, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm here because I thoroughly believe there is the afterlife. Yeah, I'm yeah. Not here for the money. I'm not interested in the money. Oh, no, I'm not going to give it away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd have that. You'd have all that sort of levels of hypocrisy, and then you'd have. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but you know, this is this is in the, you know, this is in so many things. You'd have, you'd have the fact that, you know, well, I need money for my research, even though I don't believe the afterlife's real. Um, and then you've got the ruined, the ruined child medium, who's obviously not got a pot to piss in by the look of him. I mean, his entrance in the film is brilliant. Everyone else is very pompous and driving around in nice cars. Uh, and he arrives in a crappy railway station. Yeah. Wearing yeah. what's probably his only set of clothes. Um, yeah. So there's, there's a lot going on, but it's actually quite exciting to think, oh, I wonder who owns the rights. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, look into it. But funnily enough, the novel had already solved all those problems. And again, right. they didn't do it. I mean, maybe this was part of Matheson's um, disappointment because maybe they filmed these things and then cut them. The novel has mm. quite a short scene quite late on where Florence has been injured. Mm. So um, Dr. Barrett rings up, uh, you know, Deutsch's man, who is the who's kind of keeping tabs on them and just says, can you get them to send an ambulance, please? And the guy's a bit uncertain about what to say. And there's a pause, and he goes, oh, no, you know what? It's not fair to you. You deserve to know. And Barrett goes, what? And he says, Mr. Deutsch died this morning. He took too many painkillers last night. Uh, and, uh, and, and Barrett goes, what about the money? And, it, and he says, probably not. Um, did you have anything in writing? And he goes, no. And, uh, uh, and the guy goes, I don't think Mr. Deutsch's son will want to pay you. He he told us to leave you here. <laughs> so, and then and then you know uh, all of that's better. Yeah, exactly. So I think they might well have shot that scene and then done a Ridley Scott thing of just cutting it for time or pacing yeah. or whatever. And and you know you can imagine being Richard Matheson going, "You idiots! That's really important because it's after that that the Ronnie McDowell character has the turn where he, yeah, you know, yeah. he, he was going for the money and then he decides to do the right thing because he knows yeah, yeah. that the money's not coming. I, oh God, I'd love to see the original script now because I, I, I am now fully convinced that it was a long, slightly longer script and it got a little bit butchered and he obviously didn't have final cut. 
and um, no, he didn't. No. Yeah, longer version of the script, just a few lines. That um, that the fact that you just have. I mean, it's funny you should mention Ridley Scott. It's like watching his earlier version of uh, of uh, of. Uh, of Blade Kingdom of, Kingdom of oh, Heaven. Kingdom of Heaven. Right. Okay. But it's like, where did her hair go? But in this, it's a bit like, if you just had a two-minute, two one-minute scene of a phone call where the money is taken off the table, that's a great dramatic point. And even better, in a way, it doesn't make me go 48 years later go, hang on, what about? Yeah, um, yeah. What about the guy? Who wanted to find out if there was life after death? Yeah. Turns out you're on a fool's errand. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. There's one other note that the book does that it's just weird. Well, it's not weird because they didn't have to do this, but the last line of the book, as um, as Ben and she's called Anna in the film, but in the book she's called Edith, Mrs. Barrett. Mm. Um, as they're walking away from the house. Ben says, oh, and um, and she goes, what? And he goes, Merry Christmas. Because it's yeah, Christmas that's Eve. that's something I've got written down. No mention of Christmas. Yeah, even though... They have, they have this, make a big point of having the date yeah. on the bottom. And I'm like, no one's mentioned the fact it's Christmas. Is that yeah. important that it's Christmas? If not, why not make it a different date? Because that's, yeah. that's another misstep. Yeah, again, you could just change the dates, couldn't you? You could do that yeah. in post-production. Just say it's not Christmas because there's no mention of it, and it makes you go, "Oh my God, is it going to be like a satanic rite that has to be a, you know, yeah, be a corruption of the nativity?" I mean, in the in the <laughs> book, you know, they have like the evil chapel that is Belasco's chapel, and it's got a yeah, crucifix yeah. in it. In the book, that crucifix has a Jesus on it with a massive penis. Uh-huh. Um, and and when that falls on Florence, it's even more unpleasant than it is. <laughs> In the movie, as you can imagine, um, but no, that but literally that line "Merry Christmas" is the only reference to Christmas in the book, and I can see that he's setting it up, and maybe they thought that's a cheesy final line for the film. But if they thought that, go back and change all the dates leading up to it. That's all you have to do, you know, and then yeah, you yeah. don't need the line. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's yeah. it's 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 very flawed. The more you dig down into it. And yes, it has so many great things in it. Yeah, but, um, uh, well, in a way, I feel that it's very flawed, but not until ten minutes before the end. Um, and you, you, re- there's so so much that's not paid off or that's mispaid off in that ending. Mm, but nearly everything leading just, up to it is stopped, perfectly done. Yeah. But just stop. That does stop me from wholeheartedly recommending it, though. Yeah. Because if I go, you know, I'll go, oh, I love the Wicker Man. Yes, you might find it a bit slow, but believe me, it'll rump up and rump up and oh my yeah. God. Yeah, yeah. And I know people will come away going, he shouted Jesus Christ while baby burnt alive. That's amazing. Or, um, or you know, or so many other films. I know it's going to be slow. You know, The Exorcist, we keep mentioning it. I, I you know, yes, it's a bit slow, but yeah. honestly, it's scary. How scary can The Exorcist be? No, it's scary. Yeah, yeah. Where, and it, where else? And it, nearly nine times out of ten, it is. For whoever's watching. The trouble with this film is that if you recommend it, you have to do so with the caveat, and I, yeah. like I did, I think you have to say, "But the ending is disappointing." And unfortunately, a disappointing ending means that the overall impression is disappointment. It doesn't really yeah. matter how good 
the, well, the, the build-up is. It's the, it's, 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 people, people that don't understand about writing don't understand. You don't just sort of write things and then get to the end and go, and then that happened. They woke up and it was all a dream or whatever. You, it's all there all at once. So they were always working towards that destination. And that destination was a bit rubbish. Yeah. So, so, so therefore, it's, it, that floor is that floor runs through the entire thing. Yeah. But, and they could have fixed. They could have fixed it. Uh, and it's a great shame. It sounds because... like he half fixed it in the book, so he made his story worse by turning it into a film, or the filmmakers did. Yeah. Or a mixture of things, but it kind of makes me go, I really want to read the book, and in an mm. ideal world, wow, that'd be a great thing to adapt. Cause, yeah, well, you know. Because the legend of Hell House is, uh, you know, it's good in lots and lots of ways. And and no one's done a properly good version of it yet. Yeah. It's not like, let's do the turn of the screw. After yeah. Done the Maybe they'll do it, Ian, as the third series of The Haunting of... So uh, The Haunting yeah, no, of Belasco luck. House. Yeah, no, my luck. <laughs> oh, will, will they have the reverser? <laughs> called the reverser there were ways of dealing with the carnality which I talking about all these things is, I'm, I'm writing a thing about vampires and actually I thought vampires are dead they're not sexy sexy yes yeah. vampires are going to be dead and the hero is going to be tempted because she's so burned up actually when she starts getting frisky with her with, with people that's when that's going to be an indication that she's uh, she's actually turning away from, you know, from uh, being being surrendering to the vampires. Very boring Michael Pence way of life. And, uh, right. <laughs> he's a vampire. Boring, Michael boring Pence. Vampire, you know, all this. Vampires are so sexy. So sexy. They never stop fucking. And they're dead. <laughs> I much prefer the idea of vampires being dead and they don't have the joy of life. They just, instead of sex and all the stuff we like, they just drink blood and murder people. Yeah. They're horrible. Which, which is, you know, like a serial, an impotent serial killer. That's a much scarier monster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're like, they're addicts, basically. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, um, there's that great line in Sherlock Holmes yeah. where, where Dr. Watson says the thing about heroin is that after a... Um, after the initial euphoria, soon all the um, benefits of its use go away, and what's left... Sorry, I think he's talking about cocaine, not heroin, on, obviously, at that time. Um, Morphine. But, um, but after the but, benefits go away, all, all that it offers is a temporary respite for the hideous side effects of its absence. Mm. Um, so, And I think that vampires are, you know, are like that with human blood, probably. Yeah. He says yeah, as yeah. if vampires are real. Well, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's just all these things are different ways of looking at, you know, what's what's gone before. And having the bad guys being the ones who have all the good sex is very old school Judeo-Christian. Yeah. Good good guys hold crucifixes up and can, you know, we're the pure brave knights in armour that can resist. We yeah. can have our chastity and the Bible and the cross. We can resist these evil, evil carnal beasts. Um, <laughs> and it's just uh, a bit more interesting to go. Those people tend to be the bad guys. Puritans, yeah, tend to be the bad guys. 
yeah, I, th- I think those <laughs> tropes, we're, we're, we're definitely long past time when those tropes need yes. some moving on and revision. So, yeah, let's, yeah, yeah, let's yeah. develop our thinking. But I think yeah. we've said everything we can say about the legend of Hell House, Ian. Um, yeah. It's a shame that we've we've missed Tim for the last part of the dis- of the discussion. Um, yeah, I've I've had a message from him. Um, his Wi-Fi is completely dead, it seems. But at least yeah. he was here for the mo- most part. And um, we have I I have he and you to thank for the fact that I just watched this film again, which I probably wouldn't have done. And I did really mm-hmm. enjoy it, even though it is hugely flawed. And I think I might. Watch it again. Oh, yeah. glad that I no regrets it. for seeing, no, no regrets for having watched it because I I hadn't really seen Pamela Franklin or anything other than right. the Innocence and Roddy McDowell. I've hardly ever seen him outside of an ape mask. Right. In the Martian Chronicles. Right. Okay. But uh, so it was great seeing him play human. And yeah, yeah. Both of them are very fantastic. Yeah, and I was quite disappointed to uh to realize on checking that because i just thought he's probably in a few other british horror movies or just horror movies but he isn't um even though he's got exactly the right kind of face and manner for that kind of genre i think johnny depp when they made sleepy hollow johnny depp based his performance on roddy mcdowell and um uh that that was mentioned at the time and and that gave me the impression that McDowell had a, a kind of great history with the genre, but he doesn't really, but he is fantastic. Um, mm. And uh, it, it's great to see him in something like this. And, and, you know, as undoubtedly Howard would be here saying, and he's a fantastic murderer in Columbo, which he is. Yes. Um, but he, he's, he's a character who I'm really always happy to see on screen. But oddly enough, Pamela Franklin, although she did have a vast career outside this the only things i've ever seen her in have been horror stuff mm. so she's in obviously she's in the innocence then she's in the hammer film the nanny uh then she's in and soon the darkness then she's in this then she's in several episodes of thriller and you can actually find quite a few things where she's got a really good american accent i started to think she was american because i think she mm. her career went that way i think she's in little house on the prairie and things like that so um and she's i think she's still alive um i don't really know what she's doing now but uh it's a great oh. vehicle for her and i'm quite pleased to think that i i still have further um, adventures with pamela franklin to look forward to we told kirsty and uh, stella we wouldn't start being all all, se- all sexist and lusting after uh, lusting after people well, <laughs> well, um, I did. I didn't lost after Pamela Franklin. I just might have used some words which suggested that I was doing so. So, um, I, I'll I'll leave that as it is. But um, yes. but no, it was. And considering what's in the book of Hell House, I think we were relatively restrained in our sexual content this episode. Um, yes. So that was good. Also, fun. I think it was. Uh, it was probably quite problematic <laughs> yes yeah I, I mean it definitely would be i mean i think if we if we did have kirsty and stella here and we were talking about the book rather than the film but even if we we're just talking about the film there'd be there'd be lots that you can get into yeah um, she's you forget how she's actually only 70 years old and she's still alive pamela franklin right okay great well yes uh, long may you live pamela well, she hasn't done a film since 1981 
So she had 20 years from... Wow, she hasn't done, done a film in my lifetime. No, no. So Blimey. she's... Uh, we should bring her back I and th give her a star vehicle, Ian. Well, yeah, I was just thinking that. But, yeah. um, yeah. yeah, I have a feeling it talks about her husband and her sons as she did that classic thing of, well, I can't possibly work if I've got children. So yeah, right. uh, she, she married an actor and he, he does working and uh, she brings up the kids. Right. <laughs> so oh, I guess, but, but she's still going. So, yeah, uh, well, good for her and good for her. Only, only 70 years old. Yeah, awesome. Well, very, she seems very young. <laughs> in the new, in the new market of audio drama, we we might oh. hear from some of these disappeared actors again. We'll just say to them, "You don't even have to leave your house. It's fine. You can relax." Oh. You know, Barbara Steele is still making horror material on audio, so there's hope yeah, for yeah. all of these um, these old stars. <laughs> Hello, folks. Editor Dan here. That was the end of Ian and I's contribution to the Legend of Hell House discussion. But the day after the recording, Tim sent through this recording of his voice since he vanished prematurely from the discussion on the day. And I think it's only fair to give him the last word. Hi, guys. Um, so, yeah, my broadband seemed to have a Belasco in the machine. Uh, and unfortunately, I dropped off the rest of the podcast. I made most of the points that I wanted to make. However... There were a few points uh, I just want to mention. The first sitting with uh, Florence Tanner channeling the supernatural entity or energy was an incredibly t intense scene. And the fact that it's done 20 minutes into the film uh, is quite remarkable for me, really. The fact that they just don't waste time. They, they get on with the nitty gritty straight away. It's an incredibly intense scene. Um, it's acted brilliantly. As I say, it's seemingly at the time that she's channeling the, the spirit of Daniel Belasco. Um, and it's very menacing. Uh, it's extremely moody. Uh, the lighting is wonderful and the acting is great. And the sound, the, the ambient sound that's used uh, for that, uh, that entire scene, you know, just, just really, really clinches it for me. And it, it, it's the scene that just pulls you in. It, it pulls you in. And then from that point, me personally, my interest is just held completely. And it's for that reason, it's one of my favorite scenes of the film. So yeah, absolutely great seeing that. Uh, also, Roddy McDowell has one of my favourite lines in the film, and it's quite soon after he makes that uh, you know brilliant speech about what happened in the past, and he just looks and says, "I was the only one to make it out of here alive and sane in 1953, and I will be the only one to make it out of here alive and sane this time." And the way he just plays that is just absolutely brilliant. Makes it a real standout line. There's another line, actually, which uh, Clive Reville has, his last line before he's killed, where he, he thinks that the undirected energy that he thinks was in the house rather than a spiritual energy, he thinks it's gone, it's been eradicated by the machine. And he's just, you know, just looking at his readings. And then suddenly the readings on the machine start going absolutely haywire. And he's completely baffled and just can't believe what he's seeing. And then he says that immortal line, impossible. I don't accept this. I do not accept this. And I can tell you to this very day, I still <laughs> still use that line in everyday uh, situations myself. Just the thing about the, the, the film is, is how the actors just play those, those brilliant lines. Um, and they just, you know, they stay on your memory long after you see the film. And of course, I have mentioned Roddy McDowell's uh, wonderful sort of monologue at the end when he's... You know, he's taking on the spirit of, of, of 
the real Blasco. Um, and then he's being sort of thrown back by the supernatural forces and blown back by wind and all sorts of things. And we know that that leads to a very sort of disappointing and silly um, and for me rather confusing conclusion. But I still think uh, Roddy McDowell's performance leading up to that is, you know, it's just outstanding. He really acts his socks off there, really, really goes for it. Um, and for me, it's a great climatic scene of the film, even if the ending sort of, you know, pitters out a little bit. Overall, The Legend of Hell House for me is got to be one of my favourite horror films of all time. It's up there with Horror Express on a par for the main reason that I saw it around about the same time when I was a kid. And like Horror Express, The Legend of Hell House will always have a special place in my heart. And I'll recommend it to anyone. I think it probably is one of the best haunted house movies of all time. Thank you guys for allowing me on the podcast to talk about it and for me to share my thoughts with you on the film. Um, so thank you very much for letting me take part in the podcast. I really, really enjoyed it. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I hope to see you on a future podcast at some point. Thank you very much. Cheers. Or as Peter Bowles would say, good day. All right, Ian. So um, that's the main discussion concluded, but we normally mm-hmm. do our recommendations at the end. I know that Tim didn't have a recommendation, so we can go ahead without him quite comfortably on this one. What's your recommendation for this week? Well, I don't know if it's 100% a recommendation, but it's basically go and watch that and see what you think. Um, it's the Ridley Scott um, TV sci-fi um, called Raised by Wolves, which A, I think is a terrible title. Also, it's um, a Kathleen Moran sitcom. Well, it is. It is that as well. But it's I'd also, be really annoyed if I was her, because it's only like five years but old. It's like, but it's like, yet again, it's androids um, right. who maybe think they're human and leak milk everywhere. Um, right. Exactly the same as they always seem to do. That seems to be the law that... Uh, Androids leak. So in Ridley Scott's universe. In Ridley yeah. Scott's, yeah, they leak. They leak sort of semeny looking milk. <laughs> um, and and it's it's kind of some people have absolutely gone bananas saying it's absolute genius, and I think they're wrong. But at the same time, I couldn't stop watching it. So it really is. I definitely think it's something you should watch and make your own mind up. But also just so you have watched it, because. It's very silly. It's basically, it's you know, it's you should watch it because it's like me. You hated Covenant and uh, and uh, Prometheus. It's basically as though you took the the bit in Covenant with uh, with the android playing a flute. Oh yeah, and 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 distilled that crapness. Um, into a very watchable, somehow very watchable 10-episode TV um, sci-fi with, um, the, with the guy from Vikings in, sort of in the lead and some quite annoying children and some amazing special effects and some good, uh, just, just some utter, utter sci-fi cheese. And then in the last episode, that is so... Talk about handbrake turns and you didn't see that coming i think they dropped acid and went let's let's just make it up in episode 10. it's just ridiculous so not a, not a strong recommendation so don't say i didn't warn you but at the same time some people have absolutely loved it um 
and um, I still enjoyed it, but not because I thought it was that good. Well, it's I funny. Mean, fu funny. I'm on a knife edge, really. I think I kind of understand where Ridley Scott comes from in terms of his fascination with androids, because I do find, you know, the idea of making robots that that appear human and where the dividing line is i think mm. it, it can lead to some really fascinating drama you know i love humans the the series mm. i love westworld some of it um mm. and things like that you know but on the other hand i am quite bitter about ridley scott's recent decisions with regard to some of my favorite mm. franchises so uh, i kind of want to see it come a cropper but maybe I'll check it out. Where can it be found, Ian? Uh, well, Now TV or or Sky Atlantic. Okay. Um, it's HBO, and I think it's a HBO thing. Um, right. So I think in other parts of the world, HBO Max and that sort of thing. But in the UK, yeah, it's Sky Atlantic slash I watch it on my Roku box on Now TV. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's very, very silly. Um and just maddening, maddeningly so, I would say. Um, and then it right. has ridiculous. There's been a war on, on Earth between the atheists, and he literally says the word atheist so often, it makes it's like a 16 year old's word. Um, <laughs> right. It, you're an atheist, you're going to, you're going to hell. It's, uh, it's very juvenile, and I don't know why it's got, why people love it quite so much. But an interview I read with Ridley Scott said you should watch it with three bottles of wine. So I think he knows what he's done. <laughs> so okay. It's enjoyable, but it's tosh. It's it's sci-fi. It's the sci-fi equivalent of watching Grey's Anatomy. It's just you know we know it's it is what it is, but it's actually you can't stop watching in some sort of way as well. But, uh, right. Okay. That's, that's the here end of my discussion. I'm gonna I'm gonna tune in for episode for season two. <laughs> okay, well, it's definitely got you then. Yeah, um, it's kind of like all the bad bits of Battlestar Galactica. You know, where they had all the pseudo religious stuff, which really turned me off in Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, that, all that stuff. I and felt the, like that. And the sort of pomposity that Ricky Scott seems to replace for. You know, using using place of uh, of uh, decent narrative. Just let's take this really seriously, um, <laughs> and have a have a have an android blowing blowing a flute. Oh uh, dear! Well, you know, we'll definitely go there one day. Okay, yes. so so my recommendation for this week, I've taken the plunge and joined BritBox. Um. And I think you're a member of BritBox, aren't you, Ian? Um, yeah. So they don't actually have a horror section on BritBox. It's like a tacit um, admittance that, that British TV doesn't really do horror very well, which, of course, we know it does. Um, however, yeah. if you scroll down and you look for a, a section called Creepy Christmas, they've got quite a good bunch of things. They've got two of Mark Gatiss's ghost stories for Christmas from recent years, The Tractate Mid-Off and The Dead Room. They've got this, um, the first well, series of... I've not seen The Dead Room. Um, it's, not, it's, it's not amazing, but it's, 
it's a it's an experiment in subtle horror so i, I i'm completely mm. with where it's coming from but it's not got a very satisfying payoff a bit like the legend of hell house um yeah, they've yeah. also got the they got the first series of ghosts which is on iplayer as well they've yeah. got the whole series of hammer house of horror which a couple of episodes of that are awful but some of them are really good and there's one with peter cushing and brian cox in um, is the house that ble- is the house that bled blood or whatever it's called the house that bled to death he's on there. i haven't death. seen that one but he is on there yeah. i remember watching that as a child and being absolutely delighted and kind of horrified right so i'd love to see that as an adult and just see yeah like, it's on it's there much fun as a as i remember they've <laughs> also got inside number nine's wonderful the devil of christmas Mm. And they've got Midwinter of the Spirits, which is Stephen Volk's um, exorcism TV series starring Anna Maxwell Martin, based on novels by an author whose name escapes me. And I have never seen it, but I hear it's great. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because obviously it's ITV and not just BBC. Yeah, I like that, actually. Actually, I recommend that because the Satanists in that, they are debauched and into child abuse and stuff. But... You don't like see very much of it. There's a few video, a few dodgy videos they find, but they feel very real and evil. And it's that mixture. Yeah, it gets it really well. It feels like real perverts, real horrible, evil people who are Satanists. And it's really, yeah, it's really effective. And then it also has a sort of supernatural, jumpy scares, demons in people's bodies and spooky old men. I know you'd like. You'd like that. I, I oh, thought, fantastic. I thought, that I thought that should have got a second series, to be honest. I liked it a lot. Yeah, I, I'm in contact with um, one of the actors in it, Simon Trinder, and I think he was quite disappointed, obviously, yeah, thought... as, as you always are as an actor. When, when well, I was always, I'm always told by, by various people, my agent and things, that that you shouldn't mention horror if you're going for TV because... Because it's just for some reason something people in TV have a block on. Yeah. So use words like suspense and things like that. And yeah. if you just full on say horror, then they don't understand what you're going to do on TV. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, that makes sense actually. Yeah. So I think about like science fiction. It's it's it, you know it's genre cousin. People in charge of TV don't get science fiction and they don't get horror. Yeah. And great, 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 great swathes of the population will, you know, will keep putting money in the slot to get more of it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, in yeah. television, especially, they seem to go, no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, that British thing. You're not having any of that. They're afraid of things that make money as well. Yeah, That's I very, think very odd. That what you need is another hospital drama. oh dear god just a few more things to mention that I'm seeing as I'm just scrolling down the scrapey Christmas things in Britbox there's some very relevant to to today's episode recommendations there's Twins of Evil which is the brilliant John Hoff Hammer film that I mentioned that he made before Mm -hmm. Hell House there's The Devil Rides Out which is the Hammer film based on the novel by Dennis Wheatley but adapted by Richard Matheson that's That's a great film that's great. And there's also a movie that I mentioned last week. The original, not the current remake that's coming up at Christmas, but the original Black Narcissus with Deborah Carr is on there as well. And it's 
not I don't know it's it's a it's a horror tinged drama and very delicately wonderfully dark and subtly um disturbing so there's loads to recommend on there so actually Brickbox, on it is I think these things might only be on Brickbox for the duration of Christmas yeah yeah I'm but they go are on there now right out because I've not seen that in about 25 years oh uh, I saw it on the big screen last year with our friend Ross and he'd never yeah. seen of it never never heard of it or seen it before and I remember he loved scaring it. the Jesus out of me um, I don't find it hugely frightening, but it's mm. a compelling thrill. What I call it is a compelling thriller about um, opposing people who are magic users. It looks kind of quite a straight. You know, if you if you have a rationalist sensibility, you know, you don't automatically buy into the God is good, the devil is evil thing unless it's connected to a rational perspective then you more kind of look at it as these people who i don't really understand don't like each other and mm. they're in conflict but you know one of them's played by christopher lee and one of them's yeah. played by charles gray and they're both very compelling and charismatic yeah, in different I, well, ways i remember living it as a younger man but night of the demon is kind of you know I'm trying to combat a magic user, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've not seen that for many years. I'd love to. I've seen other versions of that story, including the well, brilliant there's one. There's a film we should uh, do a we should do a podcast on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a definite yeah. one. I know that. I would love that. It. Yeah, I'm sure we can. Um, okay, Ian. I think that brings us to the end for this yeah. week. It's been a bumper one, and it's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Good luck with the good luck with the edit, man. <laughs> Cheers, fella. Thank Stop you, listeners. Of the internet. Next time we're with you, it will be Christmas. So, um, hope you're all having a nice, quiet, incarcerated, you know, um, sober, relatively sober Christmas in this time of pandemic. Um, but you know, I hope we can all enjoy it and make it special anyway. And anyway, you'll you'll be hearing from us then. Take care and bye bye. Twenty twenty is over. <laughs> twenty twenty is hindsight, almost. Yes. So fuck off, twenty twenty. <laughs> and on that note, bye everyone. <laughs> bye. You have been listening to, and now the podcast starts. Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited. Presented by. Ian Winterton and T.D. Velasquez with special guests Tim Shaw and Howard Whittock. Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages, at AndNowPod or at LeeCushingPod. Follow us on Twitter, at AndNowPodcast or at LeeCushingPodcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash and now podcast
And now, the podcast stops. <laughs>